I was a lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot and a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars scats. Wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels Guys and dolls, we are back. After a brief interruption, I did not do a call-in episode on Monday. I am so sorry because Monday's episode was a juicy episode, and I know you wanted to talk about it. We had Glenn and Greenwald on talking about a range of subjects, including the scuttlebutt over Taylor Renz's reporting on the libs of TikTok, whether or not the uh, runner of the person who runs that account was actually, in fact, doxxed, whether or not there are quibbles to be had, criticisms to be made of the focus of Taylor Lorenz's journalistic coverage, whether it has journalistic value, whether or not she or probably more so the media creates a halo around her, a victimhood that causes her to draw both unusual amounts of ire and you know, unusual amounts of uh, people defending her because of the perception that she needs defense because she is a young woman, something that Glenn disputed. It's always such a pleasure to talk to Glenn, but we also talked about the big issue of the day. The question, the, the happening that's still in everybody's mind is the Elon Musk Twitter buy. And we had a conversation about how the left should understand the investment of billionaires in the media, given that it is everywhere. I saw Crystal Ball on Instagram today posted an interesting post, and I ended up reposting it because it pointed out how many billionaires own all of the media that we use. Jeff Bezos, The Washington Post, John Henry, don't really know him, but he's got $2.6 million, billion. He owns the Boston Globe. Sheldon Adelson, Las Vegas uh, Review Journal. Irene Powell Jobs, The Atlantic. Patrick Soon Chiang, The Los Angeles Time. And Mark Benioff, Time Magazine. What does it mean to get involved with something like Colin? What does it mean to go over to Rumble? What does it mean to have Pierre Omidyar fund The Intercept? Why do some of these ventures get perceived differently than other ventures? We got into that. Um, and then, of course, we have today's episode in which I spoke to one of the three deputy campaign managers of the Bernie Sanders campaign. We didn't get into why there's three, but we were t- we can talk about it tonight. Uh, Ari Robinhoft, who talked about his new book, which shed some interesting insider light onto what it was like to work on the campaign. Few people were as close to Bernie and traveled with Bernie as intimately as long as Ari did. And there was definitely some new stuff in the, in the book, even for me, including what I thought was a pretty interesting chapter about um, what happened at this Facebook meeting where they basically tried to suggest that the Senator Sanders's office basically delegate how to message and, you know, 
frame issues, basically direct the, the agenda of the Senate office's Facebook page for them after kind of the ad, uh, algorithm apocalypse or whatever we are calling it. So all of that happened. I also asked him about what he thought about the CPC Senator Turner endorsement. And principally I asked him, are we all too easy on Bernie? Does the fact that we kind of admire his inflexibility because it made him so on message for all of these years, do we kind of say that in a way that covers up some, the ways in which that same inflexibility really did hurt the campaign we got into all of it. We got into all of it, and we can talk about it all today. It's also been, I got to say, a big day on Twitter, just because you guys know how much I care about student debt cancellation. Uh, Joe Biden, of course, a day or two ago, I'm losing track of time at this point, uh, said that he was seriously considering a serious amount of, of student debt cancellation. They walked that back. There was a, a like a 24-hour period where people thought, oh, we're going to get 50000 or more. They made it clear that it's going to be basically $10,000 max, but still that was enough to set off a whole host of the worst people on the internet. Uh, Mitt Romney got big mad. JD Vance got big mad. I talked about all of the worst tweets and exactly why they're so wrong about this on my radar this morning on rising. If you want to go check that out, I won't rehash it here, but I did spend the day. I got some braids installed today. So I was sitting around for hours without anything to do but be on my phone. So I rattled off some kind of troll tr- tweets and had a, a good time on the internet pointing out um, how this could be such an easy win for Biden. And he is resisting it at every turn. So there's a lot on the agenda. There are a lot of you in line. I'm going to do what has been recommended, which is jump around. Feel free to switch up the subject and talk about whatever you want to talk about. I am going to call on Johnny first, though, because I don't really recognize his name, and he is first in line. So, Johnny, unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind this evening. What's up? What's up, Bree? Um, we've talked before a while ago. but um, cool beans. Anyways, what's on my mind is I'm curious, like, how much leverage – let's say like an organization, if you breaking points, status coup, kind of like all of that media, if you were to maybe sign a contract with Twitter that said you're not allowed to censor our content or else we're going to boycott your platform. Do you have enough leverage to do that? <laughs> um, I, I don't think so. Um, I don't think Twitter cares, but isn't the whole point of all of the people who are excited about Elon Musk that they don't think that censorship is going to be a concern anymore that now now that we have a benevolent billionaire in our midst yeah but that's what i mean that's like been the idea just like getting you know biden into office because it's going to be better and then people change and people don't live up to their commitments so unless there's something in writing it doesn't seem like i mean he elon musk could change his mind about anything at any time. Well, well also, so I would argue seem- he doesn't have to change his mind. He's already manifested uh, a tendency toward trying to pay people off, to take down Twitter accounts and all kinds of things. So I think him not being especially supportive of free speech broadly would be in line with how he's already behaved. Uh, I think it's a little – I just don't quite understand why everybody has so much confidence in this guy. Uh, but that aside, I, I don't think – you know, maybe Joe Rogan or somebody like that, but Twitter is so diffuse and it's not like Spotify where it's relying on a handful of big names to bring people to the platform, you know, and besides which the power of somebody like Crystal Ball exists largely on YouTube, not Twitter. True, true, exactly. And so I I guess I kind of wonder, like, what is all the hubbub about? What do you mean? 
Well, I mean, if most of like the information dissemination is not going to be happening on Twitter, then who, I mean, who, who cares if like rumble call in to a certain degree, YouTube or Spotify, Spotify being like less censored, like, why isn't the focus just being like, well, okay, this is just another billionaire with a great idea, but Elon Musk has tried to save the world, like in a hundred different ways. And we can argue about how effective he's been doing that, but this isn't, I mean, this is just another way for him to do something that gets him a ton of attention. And people are like really scrambling to see if this is a hopeful thing or a terrible thing. And I guess I just wonder, like, is Twitter really the place that people are getting information? Well, just because I think that crystal ball has more influence and leverage on YouTube than on Twitter doesn't mean that I think that Twitter doesn't matter. I think I, I use the crystal ball example specifically because she has a huge following. She's got what, a million subscribers on YouTube on a platform where fewer people have as many followers and on Twitter, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, obviously she has a large Twitter following, but it's just not the same as a proportion and the way that money, no money is, re- is, is generated on Twitter in the same way that, you know, YouTube is relying on ads and pulling people to the website for a certain amount of ad play and clicks that you're paid for and compensated for. And so I think that that's what I'm saying. Crystal specifically, you know, her, you know, the power rests elsewhere. But for other people, for a lot of journalists and politicos, Twitter is very important and it allows a democratizing effect and people like myself who are freelancers and just getting into the business to have an equal platform and challenge folks directly. And I, you know, don't know that I would have had a career in journalism at all. And a lot of small upcoming independent people feel that way too, but for Twitter. So I think it matters. It all matters just because it is, you know, less relevant or, you know, less influential than another platform or there are other options. The reason it matters is because all of these platforms depend on everybody being in the same place for the same kind of thing. Nobody wants to have to visit three different kinds of Facebooks to find which one their fifth grade classmate is on. It's so true, I, I, mean, true. I, I, I hear you saying that it's not a radical departure from, you know, he might be good, he might be bad. And I agree that some people who are pulling their hair out, you know, or, or twisting themselves in knots to say that he's going to save the world are, are overstating things. But I, I, I'm just reserving, I'm not saying it's not going to be a big deal. I would just reserve judgment. And I certainly don't see much in the way of evidence that it's going to be a spe- you know, specifically an improvement. But hey, I, I could be proven wrong. Okay. Um, would you want to pivot to your conversation today or get to the next caller? Uh, do you have a quick question about today? Yeah, I want to get your real raw lowdown opinion. Um, because it, he sounded like just really defensive. I mean, I, and I, I don't know if I'm just not in the scene, but it just seems like every point that you brought up of criticism, it just took a real long time for him to get to say anything. And most of it didn't seem very substantive to me. And I wonder if it's just because I'm out of that world or if he didn't really say anything substantive. You know, I think it's difficult for people. You know, I think it's difficult for people. People have these senses of loyalty, which, you know, I respect on some level. But I think there's a line, you know, he explained this, that there's a line for him that he feels comfortable crossing and that's why he you know, wrote a tell-all book. But then there's a line that he's not still quite comfortable with. And for a combination of reasons, me never having that level of, level of intimacy with Bernie Sanders, me feeling more of an allegiance to 
the cause I joined, you know, for the cause and not for an individual person, not to say that Ari felt any differently about that, but I, I, I'm a little bit more comfortable going there. I also don't feel like I have very much to lose in doing so since I already don't have, you know, a relationship with a campaign. Um, you know, it's obvious that Bernie is not doing bad faith. <laughs> so like, I don't really, you know, I, I, I have no animosity. You know, I have an enormous amount of respect for Bernie Sanders, but I also don't feel really any hesitation to be honest about what I perceive to be failings on the campaign. Well, right. And that's where it's like, I mean, if it's about the movement, let's dissect what went wrong so we can make it better with the next candidate, even if it's not Bernie. But when we get obsessed with like making sure Bernie's okay, we don't, I mean, it just doesn't seem very productive. Although I have heard of so many other conversations you've had with other people where you've aired out your grievances. I think it was just like, I just felt you kind of trying to pull something more substantive out of him. And I wasn't sure if maybe I just wasn't hearing what he was actually saying because everybody at least comes across like you guys don't understand. We're actually getting a lot done. You're just not seeing it. And I just don't know. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. And I think the comments reflected that a lot of people felt that way, you know, but people, you know, that's, that's what he was willing to give. And I think there was, you know, a lot, that was interesting to learn from the book, but that, that is what it is. You know, people have their limits and some people, you know, a lot of people just aren't going to be willing. I frankly don't think that anybody is really going to be especially willing, at least at a senior level to be openly, you know, more pointedly critical. Maybe in five, 10 years, things will be different, but I don't, you're right. I don't, I don't really see it happening as I reflect on who was on the campaign at that level. I, I don't think you're going to see anybody more senior than me. And I wasn't that senior, but I don't, I don't imagine hearing anything more from anybody more senior than me. People well, more good, junior than cause... me, we talk shit <clears throat> constantly. <laughs> right, right. <clears throat> right. No, good. Because yeah. maybe I can save some time in the future, like waiting for something to actually come out of these people's mouths. So I really appreciate it. Thanks for everything. You're the best. And Patreon is amazing. Thank you for all the content. It's been the best. Thank you, Johnny. That's very sweet of you. Keep the faith. Thanks. All right, Rebecca. I'm hopping around. Everyone's got to be alert. Stay alive. Keep, keep, you know, keep on your P's and Q's. Unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind this evening. Hello? Hey, Rebecca. Hey, oh my God. I was not expecting this. I'm like cleaning my car. Um, I really thought it was going to be the last of mine. Um, awesome. Thank you for picking me. I want to say first off, like, love your content. Love your podcast. You're the only person I support on Patreon. So, um, yeah, thank you for your service. Thank you. Thank you, Rebecca. <laughs> thank you for my service. You're funny. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just to touch briefly on the whole Twitter thing. Speaking as someone who's not on Twitter and has never really been on the platform and it's kind of like an outside observer to this whole thing. Mm-hmm. I I don't see Elon Musk making any huge changes. He might bring back Trump, but like is he gonna bring back all the Palestinians who've been banned? You know, is mm-hmm. he gonna stand up for people when their countries are being cooed? Like, you know, what happened in Bolivia. Um, I seem to remember him making some comment about 
we'll coo who we want to coo. So. Oh God, I missed that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't have high hopes for his influence on the platform, but you know, we'll see. I'm willing to like give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, yeah, that's the thing that was so confusing. I, I do understand. And I said this to Glenn, like I understand all, if everybody you hate is blowing a gasket, then there's a kind of way that you want to take the opposite position. And there were a lot of libs that were kind of presuming the worst and who were very focused on the idea of Trump coming back as like a red line that should not be crossed. But can't you just acknowledge that that is silly and overblown without forgetting that this is a guy who got sanctioned by like the NLRB for doing union busting on Twitter? You know, like this is not. This is not a heroic yeah. figure. That's all. You know, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about Elon Musk, but the idea that he's going to save us all, it just seems a little bit beyond reality. Completely agree. And actually, I think like bringing it back to your conversation today with Ari, I think that was the most interesting point that came up in the discussion was him talking about this meeting that they had with the Facebook exec mm-hmm. and just basically being like, um, you know, we're clearly being, you know, shadow banned or suppressed or whatever you want to call it. Like our followers have dropped off a cliff um, and them just being like, we know it's best. We run this platform according to what, like, we think the American people should hear, um, you know, and we're ultimately like the deciding factor above what a senator or a congressperson or anyone else might think. And I think that sort of like level of digital dictatorship is it's really what's so scary. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, Elon Musk, you know, another billionaire buying out the Twitter platform isn't going to solve that issue. And that's something that's like deeper and scarier. Yeah. I, I, let me read a bit of that section from the book. Um, but first I'm going to play uh, a clip of the conversation with Glenn, where we were going back and forth about this issue of Elon Musk That'll give me time to walk across the room and get the book and read that passage. And then I'll come back to you guys. How does that sound? Okay, here's a short clip. First of all, first of all, let's just be clear about the one thing. First of all, uh-huh. which is that there's a lot of billionaire funding mm-hmm. in not just liberal, but left-wing spaces as well. Mm-hmm. Some of your favorite, you know, left-wing NGOs mm-hmm. are fueled by money from George Soros, Pierre Omidyar, other kinds of left-leaning billionaires. Um, there's a lot of campaigns, political campaigns, not just the politicians, but referenda and the like, criminal justice reform, legalizing marijuana, equality for LGBTs that are also heavily financed with billionaire funding. Michael Bloomberg gives enormous sums of money to gun reform, gun control and gun reform groups and so there's a huge amount of billionaire funding Mm -hmm. coming into not just liberal but left-wing spaces on the grounds that well look we wish we lived in a world where we didn't have to rely on billionaire funding but that's not the world in which we actually live yeah the other issue i would say is you're right that there was excitement about the prospect that elon musk might take over twitter under the banner of free speech there was also a huge amount of panic Mm. And anger and indignation mm. that mostly came from the corporate press right. that relies upon the censorship of re- uh, censorship regime in all sorts of ways. And I think when you look at how much anger emanated from places like the Washington Post and the New York Times and CNN and NBC News and all other kinds of power centers, um, including the U.S. security state over the prospect that Elon Musk might come in and take out of their hands a really important weapon, which is the weapon to silence dissent 
not just to stand on the right, but also, as you said, people on the left are constantly getting harassed and silenced and demonetized and even banned on on YouTube, which is why when I went to Rumble, one of the first people eager to come with me and who actually went was Matt Orfella, who became known as a videographer for the Sanders campaign in 2016. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of this dissent that's growing rapidly. And so I think nobody's disillu- nobody's under an illusion about who Elon Musk is. I think the idea is that right now there's such hegemonic control over big tech social media platforms that are being censored, again, not really in accordance with the agenda of, of Silicon Valley, but in, the, in accordance with the agenda of the foreign policy community, of the U.S. security state. I mean, you look at how you know censorship is being applied with respect to the war in Ukraine, and it's almost entirely censoring voices that are deemed to be pro-Russia, whereas nobody who's on the side of the Ukrainians, i.e. the U.S. and NATO, get censored no matter how much disinformation they spread. There's a complete alignment with the censorship regime with the powers that be in Washington. So when someone comes in and even suggests that they might finally make a dent in that, even mm-hmm. if it's Elon Musk, I think people just feel like finally there's a potential that this incredibly hegemonic and always strengthening regime of repression might finally be subverted. No, I get that. And look, I, Twitter has been no friend to me of, late and if elon musk wants to buy twitter and unshadow ban me i'm i'm gonna be appreciative of that effort i don't know it was i i understand that the part of the enthusiasm was backlash against everybody that we hate on the internet being so triggered by the prospect but you know shama sawant was just on our last episode talking about how our enemy's enemy is not our friend and how you know you know tucker carlson having chris malls on to talk about you know, Amazon and kind of superficially supporting the effort doesn't mean we all obviously become, you know, huge fans of his entire worldview, Tucker Carlson's entire worldview. I, I take that point as well. You know, that's all I'm saying. It was, it was curious to me that it, it pivoted so far into a kind of lack of analysis of what Elon Musk might do good and bad in that moment. So what do we think about that? Is it, is it true that no one's under an illusion about who Elon Musk is? Um, like, what do you mean by no one? I mean, this idea that the people who are really looking forward to Elon Musk buying Twitter, that they are doing so with the knowledge that he's a real mixed bag, that he's not a superhero, that they're, they're kind of clear right about it. I don't know that I agree with that. I think a lot of people really see him as more unequivocally good and a definite benefit for Twitter and basically see no downsides. It can only get better basically is the, is the view. Um, yeah, I think definitely people on the right, you know, they, they see him as sort of like a hero or someone who willing to, you know, stand up against the liberal censorship of like certain right wing stories, like, you know, the laptop story. Um, and, they they might have like some marginal benefit in like the voices that get amplified or or the platforms that don't get banned so maybe like in a sense they're they're right to have some optimism um i definitely think that there's been sort of a i don't know like a dnc consensus of like what um stories are appropriate and what aren't that have been sort of mainstreamed on twitter mm-hmm. um but i don't know like um if that means like everyone thinks that about Elon Musk or thinks he's going to be a great influence on the platform. Like, 
I don't think anyone who is like that heavily beholden to like groups like the Pentagon and you know Wall Street and things like that through his companies like Tesla and SpaceX and mm-hmm. whatnot. China to Matt, Matt Stoller wrote a great piece about that. I know that Kim Iverson's been talking a lot about that as well. I think. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that that's right. Obviously, it's not. You can't speak in absolutes, but I, I do think that I'm a little less credulous uh, than Glenn is about people being clear-eyed. Thanks for calling in, Rebecca. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. I'm going to go to you, Sylvester, next. How are you, my friend? Sylvester, can you unmute yourself and uh, let us know what's on your mind this evening? All right. I can bring you back from the back later. Let's go to... Christopher Down, what's on your mind this evening? Oh, no. Well, I wanted to talk about electoralism. So Sure. That's a while back. But I guess my overall feeling is that the people who say we need to organize and all that mumbo, like, that's going to happen every day. Like, that happens every night. So... I don't see the two being exclusive, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. So I don't get, like, why we can't support politicians and the candidates while also being, like, activists, you know? Well, I think the question is, is it worth – in our support of leftists, are we basically doing a kind of vote blue no matter who – where we're saying, well, of course, leftists are better than the centrist Democrat. Of course, Nina Turner is better than Chantel Brown. Um, so we fail to have any accountability for progressives like the squad members who have gotten into Congress and then, in many people's eyes, undermine, you know, betrayed the people who got them there by not following, following through on their commitment to have an adversarial approach to the Democratic Party. And the only accountability that many people see that they have is the ability to withhold their vote. Absent there being a, a membership organization like Socialist Alternative to which Shama is accountable, although a lot of that just has to do with Shama's own integrity in deciding to be accountable to that organization, right? So it's not a question of is it possible to organize and also be involved in electoralism. It's is it, one, enabling a kind of vote blue no matter whoism, and also for people who are largely working class and for whom a $27 donation can represent several hours of work – if you only have so much to give, would you rather give it to mutual aid or put it toward organizing efforts as opposed to donating to candidates? And I think a lot of folks would be very willing and happy to vote for any number of progressive candidates in their district. That's a very different thing than offering them kind of financial support that buoyed so many candidates into office in the first place. Yeah. I don't know. I just feel like a lot of the pressure from people who are like already organizers or people who have been doing this for decades or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, it's usually like a, why aren't you doing this? Or like, why aren't you getting involved? When for me, I like, or if for me and for a lot of people, I guess, they don't feel like they have enough time or it's not really their priority or it can't be their priority. So what I'm saying is like, like the vote, that we give to progressives that is the bare minimum and the money that we put behind that is like 
pushing the movement. Like, I feel like it's two different things, you know, like giving money directly towards candidates is like, (laughs) I don't know how to put him into words, I guess. You're, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure where you're going either. I want to jump in and help you, but I'm not exactly sure how. (laughs) Um, well, I basically feel like if we do nothing, the people Mm -hmm. like as donations and the conversations we have as like leftists and whatever, like even that aside, the activists and all that stuff is happening either way. So, right. So I I think it's about individuals making the individual choice. So if you're already an activist, I mean, great, you know, and your, your decision to, so you see your extra time where you're not doing activism or organizing to vote for a candidate or campaign for a candidate, that's bonus. And that's, that's great. But for a lot of people, I mean, you know, I'd like to sit here and say we're all activists and stuff, but that's obviously not true. Most people are sitting around living their lives, getting by, you know, raising their kids, going to work, watching TV, going to sleep. So, you know, for the people who felt galvanized by the Bernie movement or by the progressive sweep in 2018, and started doing things for the first time. Maybe they joined DSA. Maybe they started regular donations to various candidates. Maybe they knocked doors for the Bernie campaign. They're asking themselves, will I continue this level of effort? And if I am going to continue that level of effort, am I going to continue invested in this electoral project, which has failed me now several times over since 2016? That's the question. So I don't think it really is maybe so germane to you as an activists if, if you if everyone has time to do both and everybody has all the money to give to everything and there's the bandwidth issue that that's fine but i think a lot of people one do have limited resources and two honestly don't want to validate what they feel to be a system that has no accountability and where people have not demonstrated and uh what the return on the investment is going to be so i think that many many people have articulated that if a candidate if a progressive candidate were to Right outside of the Democratic Party or articulate specifically critiques of people who are already elected and distinguish themselves from them and say very clearly how they're going to behave differently. Say the kind of things on the record, which will get them looked at critically by maybe members of the squad, but certainly people like Nancy Pelosi and to have to stand by those statements and have a willingness to run for office, having, you know, you know, declared themselves as adversarial people aren't saying i'm against voting for any candidate but they want some bare minimum demonstration that you're going to be different than the ones we've already tried to get elected given the ones that we did get elected have disappointed folks from you know that's a subjective view but that's a view that a lot of people share does that make sense (laughs) yeah uh yeah yeah i don't know i feel like i usually get angry in a way when like people have like Chris Hedges, yeah. Mm-hmm. Where how he feels so cynical about the whole system, where he just doesn't want to be a part of it. Where me, I feel like it does seem like the easiest direct action that we could be doing in like a two years sense of like the midterms or whatever election. But I guess what I was trying to say is that, like we can be doing that and having that conversation every two years while the progressive movement is moving forward throughout all this other activism that other people are doing 
And but, but okay, so but what does it mean, Christopher, to be doing this? Does it mean just voting for the candidate who's rent the progressive in your district? Well, no, I don't think that's activism. I mean, like the people who are actively organizing and the thing that we don't like to hear. You're saying we can do both, right? So organizing is one thing. Put that to the side. You're saying that's always happening. Great. Put that to the side. The other thing that you think we should be doing at the same time is the electoralism, right? Yes. So what does it mean? What does it mean to you to be doing electoralism? Just voting for the person in your district? Well, I think on a district level shouldn't those people in that district be taking those candidates and deciding whether that's not their, or like whether or not they should be putting that effort in. So what I'm saying is like, it's on the candidate to be galvanizing these people. A hundred percent. I see some people in the comments saying that too. And that's the issue. These candidates are not galvanizing people because the bar is higher than it was when AOC was running because it was novel for AOC to be saying, I'm a socialist and I support Medicare for all. Now we've got a bunch of people who said that that are in Congress and who oftentimes, and I'm not saying there's no difference between them and these other Democrats, but who oftentimes are voting in the same way as more typical modern, you know, progressives in the quotation marks um, and who have yet to, many people argue, make a meaningful difference, even when because of the narrow margins in the House, they could have made a difference by holding up all the legislation in order to press for progressive and a progressive agenda. So that, that, that's the issue. Like, what is the point is, is the question that people are confronting. And I think a lot of people, if the threshold is just vote for the person who's running, they're like, great, I'll vote for the person who's running, but I'm not going to do anything more than that because if I got $10 to spend, I'd rather give it to mutual aid or extinction, extinction rebellion or whatever. Well, I well okay. I feel like at this point, with the disappointing squad or whatever, mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to give my money to anyone, mm-hmm. and I feel like it would be better in other ways, whatever. And I feel like the thing that we should be doing, besides the organizing and all that, mm-hmm. is just having the conversation. What we do about who's running in these elections, so we should be having the conversation about how leftist or how corrupt or how all these people are while i mean i like i think it's on the candidate to be able to get me to give them money so Mm -hmm. i'm not saying i'll never will Mm -hmm. but that's on them and if it's easier to give my money to organizers then that's their fault so yeah Yeah. i don't know i think a lot of people feel that way i think that resonates with a lot of people yeah i just feel like it's 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 like a weird argument to to be saying that we should be doing either or when. Yeah. I mean, again, I don't think that people are really saying that. Um, I think that was really frustrating. And this came out in my interview with a couple of candidates a few weeks ago is that there's a way that people who are candidates and who are very heavily invested will say, don't sit out, don't do nothing. And then every, that characterization of it as either or really gets people upset because they're like, we're not doing nothing. We just don't think your approach is worthwhile. And if you do, mm-hmm. then you have to sell us on it, not just like wag your finger at us and tell us that we're, you know, somehow lazy bums who just aren't willing to put in the effort. We will put in the effort, but you have to demonstrate that it's worth the effort. That's all. Yeah. No, I agree. All right. Well, I think a lot of people are going to resonate with um, that's going <laughs> to resonate with a lot of people, Christopher. And thank you for calling in. No problem. Thanks for 
taking my questions. <laughs> of course, of course. I am going to bring up Brian next. But before I, you unmute yourself, Brian, I found the bit about Facebook in the in Ari's book, and I want to read it to you. I saw some people clip it a little bit on on um, Twitter, but this is a call-in exclusive on the debrief because uh, I've got the whole flipping book. So this was one of the spiciest bits to me because I wasn't privy to it. You know, a lot of this obviously was happening in front of me. Um, but here we go. In 2017, as our online presence grew, Bernie took a personal interest in the distribution strategy behind our videos. He spent time each week thinking about the content he wanted to create and how many people were tuning in. At one point, we began to notice weird traffic patterns with spikes and drops on Facebook that were seemingly unrelated to any obvious factors. Facebook was apparently out of sync with other social media platforms. While our audiences on other platforms were growing, all of a sudden people stopped liking our Facebook page. We quickly realized the social network had changed its algorithm and was no longer serving our content. Later on, we recognized this happened to nearly all progressive outlets. The Wall Street Journal subsequently reported in October 2020 that Facebook had intentionally adjusted their algorithm to the benefit of conservative outlets over progressive ones. So then they put together all these meetings. I'm skipping ahead. Blah, blah, blah. Um, in the fall of 2018, during the lead up to the election, we noticed a flurry of Facebook pages running ads claiming Bernie was encouraging people to vote against Democratic candidates in swing House districts. Believing these ads were violations of the company's policies, we filed a complaint. The ads were initially taken down, but then they were put back up a few days before the election. A reporter from Vice looked into the ad's origins, but when he went to the listed addresses of the company that produced them, he found that the group that claimed to be running the ads did not exist there. According to the building superintendent, there was no tenant in the building that fit the description. Even when presented with this information, Facebook claimed the ads were legitimate and refused to take them down. At a post-election meeting with Facebook in his Senate office, Bernie pressed Facebook representatives about how the company was making content decisions. A mid-level lobbyist told him he should be running specific types of content on particular subjects, perhaps changing how he talked about climate change or more prominently featuring AOC. Bernie asked Facebook uh, if Facebook thought it should determine how he should communicate with his constituents. The Facebook staff said yes. Actually, as they saw it, it would be more effective for senators to simply outsource their constituent communication strategy to Facebook, which would decide who would receive his messages. Bernie got up and left the meeting at that point, leaving the staff to talk. At that point, as you heard on the episode, when the staff members uh, referred to Bernie as a miserable old coot and Ari got mad and there was basically a standoff, et cetera, et cetera. But I thought that was wild. And I think that Ari was right that that is that is that is a real problem for Facebook to try to be dictating to sitting senators, quote, how they should communicate with their constituents. Woo. All right. OK, Brian, sorry to hold you up for that, but I want to get that out here on the record. What's on your mind this evening? It's good to see you. Good to see you, too. Long time. No talk. Congrats. <laughs> on. I don't know if it's a permanent thing or if you're just filling in, but congrats on rising. I really think Thank you, you, Robbie and Kim have good chemistry. Um I want to talk about student debt because let's I talk about that, it. <laughs> I think that the right, including the quote unquote populist right, is getting mm. really f- funny right now. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you watched Breaking Points today. Uh, probably not because you were working at Rising. I but, saw um, that there was a student debt debate between Crystal and Sagar, but I haven't had a chance to watch it. Yeah. Well, one of the things that like really irked me that Sagar said is mm. he said that student debt cancellation. I'm paraphrasing, but he basically mm-hmm. said it would be a bailout to quote unquote, well not quoting but like the woke universities dei initiatives and i was like 
what are you talking what? about? Like, aside from the merits of, like, um, admin costs for DEI, like, the university's already got their money in the loan. So Yeah, I don't understand. <laughs> I just don't understand what that's supposed to mean. Yeah, like, he said, like, oh, yeah, it's just bailing out the universities. I'm like, no, it's not. The universities, the, the universities have the money. Yes. They have the money. <laughs> And Sagar's not stupid, so I just feel like it's interesting that even the quote-unquote populist right is being kind of, like, nefarious in this situation. Well, what did Crystal say to that? Mm, I don't exactly remember, um, but she did push back a little bit, but she didn't directly attack that point the way that I would have. Um, Mm -hmm. And I just think that, like, I don't know, people are forgetting that, like, actual rich people don't take on student debt because they just pay yes. for that shit in cash. Like, yes. I don't understand why we're like, I don't understand either. That. I've been really trying to press this point and I did it in my radar this morning. Although there's just so much, I know I need to do shorter radars guys. I'm, I've always been long winded. I'm sorry. But like the, <laughs> the idea that like, I mean, I have classmates, I see it. I, I saw it happening in the years after graduation when I was still living in my studio and I see my classmates who are working the same jobs, like all the law jobs, they have the same, you know, step up salary programs, right? We're all earning the same thing. You know, first year, second year, third years, all, all sa- same starting salary in New York. And I see them moving in, like buying brownstones and I'm in my apartment and I'm really just trying to wrap my head around what's going on and paying more than my base amount, you know, for my 10 year pay- payment program. I'm like not traveling. I, I literally have never bought a sofa in my life. <laughs> like I'm, I'm shopping for one right now, but like I'm living in my first one bedroom apartment at age 36 years old. Like I, I am not, I have never lived an extravagant lifestyle. I've always been so overwhelmed by my loans and desperate not to be a lawyer that I would have done anything to pay them off so I could take a, a lower paying job, you know, that I actually wanted to do. And it, the reason I became very obvious to me very quickly is that they just were not paying their loans. They, had parents who did that is just, that's the only issue. And so even if they like, so the idea to me that my friend, God bless her, love her, but whose parents are both doctors who also went to Harvard, like didn't have to pay, like she paid sticker price. She paid $180,000 for the same degree that I am paying $250,000 for because of interest. Right. So what kind of sense does that make? Right. And Crystal did say this to her credit. She said, like, there is a difference between um, people's income and their wealth, because a Mm -hmm. lot of people that have high student debt, even if their incomes are high, they don't have generational wealth. That's why they have to take on the debt in the first place. Forget generational. (laughs) Like, my wealth is negative. Do you know what I mean? My wealth, (laughs) like, my income is my income. That's fine. But my balanced out, (laughs) my, you know, my debt, my debt to to savings ratio is, it's got to still be negative. Right. Um, And then I just want to quickly pivot to um, Twitter and Elon Musk. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, I think that the libs freaking out are doing too much. Like your BFF, Yvette Nicole Brown, is saying she's out. And I'm just like, okay, bye. (laughs) Like, whatever. LOL. She blocked me so long ago, I low-key forgot that she existed. (laughs) (laughs) But I am curious, like, what, quote-unquote, free speech means. Like, does that mean that, like, slurs are on the table without, like, any... Mm -hmm like moderation or whatever Mm -hmm. and if that's the case then that does kind of change my opinion about doxing and stuff because i do i am concerned that there's going to be a world where a bunch of like twitter gangsters with like anime avatars are going to just start like you know going slur 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 and thinking Mm. that they can get away with it um it's interesting because the culture of a place really does 
affect their user experience. And, you know, I, I don't even know what to say about this because obviously because of who I am and being a little bit of a troll, I'm not going to lie. I attract a certain amount of negative attention and I don't know how much my experience is really reflective of the generalized experience on Twitter, but you know, Twitter is obviously a lot more toxic from my perspective than Facebook. Facebook from the jump always had this little bit of a veneer of civility because it was not anonymous. You used to have to use your college login. There was this idea that your employers could see you maybe somewhere on Facebook. I think that we've gotten a little bit away from that, but there was a culture, a cultural tone that was set that really I think was a big part of its success and what made it a, a, what perceived to be a better, you know, hashtag classier alternative to MySpace, whatever that means and all of the implications, the problematic implications of that. Um, and Twitter has this weird imprimatur of formality because of all of the journalists that are on there and all the political figures that are on there and it being such a source of reporting increasingly over time at the same time that it's like the wild, wild west of anonymous accounts just calling you names and, and, and like harassing you. And that both of those things are true at the same time. And I wonder if it, if there is some risk, regardless if you care about quote unquote wokeness, or if you even care about people being harassed, or if you think that that's not really real and people aren't really being targeted and you kind of are a little bit more dismissive of it the way Glenn is, if enough people feel that way, that it changes the culture, not, you know, people, not just give that Nicole Brown storming off. I mean, normal people might just naturally start to use it less because it's just less fun. Mm hmm. Yeah, my thing about Twitter, and then I'll let everybody else talk because I know I've been here for a minute, is um, Mariah Carey trends every day. So if the, <laughs> if the lambs are on Twitter, I will be on Twitter because she is my queen. <laughs> I saw someone say the opposite. I saw someone say today, like, as long as Twitter is, like, having Kim Kardashian's belly button trend, we're, we're not losing anything by leaving. But I was like, I mean... I don't hate this content. <laughs> mm. This is the lamb space, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> it gives me you're more happiness than national politics. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, you're such a trip. Like I'm with you, Brian. I like I like the I like the high low. You know, I like exactly. the high low. <laughs> All right, thanks so much, Bree, for taking my call. Have a good Thank night. Thank you for calling in. You too. All right, you know what's really funny? The Eric's are always back to back. Cousin Eric Gray and other Eric are always, like, right next to each other in the queue. Um, I'm going to skip around a little bit before I come to you familiar faces. Let's go to Willem with the uh, Captain Picard avatar. I don't think I've seen you before. What's up, Jean-Luc? Hey, Brie. Hey, Willem. <laughs> this is the artist formerly known as Omar. Omar, how are you? I'm okay. I wanted to ask you, uh, this is kind of hearkening back to the discussion that you had about organizing. Um, it's uh, about corporate uh, contracts that workers sign um, and how they prevent, I don't know if you have any insight to this, how they prevent class action lawsuits. Like I, did, I don't understand how a company can get away with not letting workers go to the bathroom. I mean, that seems like it should be like strict uh, law in, in, in like working conditions, like for OSHA. And mm. I don't understand how that happened in Amazon. And it happened in another place that I worked in. And I got mm. fired for it because I 
took too long to go to the bathroom. Um, mm. So uh, there's that. And then I also wanted to uh, recommend uh, you have uh, Vijay Prashad um, to talk about organization and and movements, because uh, I think I've seen him uh, interviewed on this. And I think that you two would have a really good dynamic. Okay, you're like the 11 millionth person to recommend BJ Prashad. And I saw him on Katie Halper's show. And I thought to myself, I can't just have him on immediately after Katie Halper. But obviously, nobody cares. You guys want that sweet, sweet BJ content. So I'm going to give it to you. I'm writing it down. I'm going to reach out to him. And also, I'm writing a note that we should get a labor lawyer on. Sweet uh, Brie and BJ dynamic. <laughs> I th- I think like he would help you with your frustration uh with like getting specifics about organizing but Okay, I well I love that for fun. me. I love that for us and I appreciate the suggestion. <laughs> Thank you, Omar. Thank you. All right, let's hop around. Let's hop around. Let's get one of the Eric's going. Eric Smith, what's on your mind? Hey, Bree. Hey, Eric. Yeah, so I was going to really go off of like the um the the student debt talk that's been going around. And mm-hmm. like one of the things that I just don't understand is what is with certain people and this idea that if with student debt and the fact that it's always this well this 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 like fight between well if you're helping these student debt people and they just get this this visual hatred like I had to pay off my student debts so now I want you to have to go through that same suffering and I don't get that mindset. I don't get it either, man. And I gotta say, like I don't bring this up because obviously I, I obviously have no issue paying for public goods and services. I have no issue obviously paying for elementary schools and child tax credits and all this stuff that doesn't benefit me personally because the whole point is that we live in a society and it does ultimately benefit me because those little brats are going to be paying as my social security one day. Uh-huh. <laughs> like That's the whole point. Like we all benefit on some level. Like I'm so happy they don't grow up to be like miscreants that bop me over the head and steal my purse one day. You know what I mean? Like the whole point <laughs> is that we all support each other and society gets better for all of us at the same time. One of them grows up and cures cancer. Great. You know, like, so I, it makes me crazy though, because as a, because we live in this like puritanical society where so many of our social programs are designed toward like family life. If you are a single person of a certain age, it becomes glaringly obvious how much you're paying into a system that doesn't benefit you at the same time that you're independently having to, you know, rent an apartment that's priced for two people, you know, in this horrible renting market where it's impossible to rent in any city, you know, like all of the things that we know to be true. And the idea that like, it doesn't even occur to me to be an asshole about that stuff. And the one time, (laughs) the one time a program even starts to kind of sort of benefit me, it's being vilified in this way. And I don't think it's, and I mean, there's reasons. And I said, this is the end of my, my radar today. And I didn't go into it because I was going long. Like truly, I think that would have to start the draft if they cancel student debt and did Medicare for all. And then there's two other things I was going to say about the same topic. The first other thing that, because uh, when the, the other gentleman brought up the thing that happened on Breaking Points, which I watched, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, Crystal didn't really have a, rebu- I think I think someone actually posted in the chat about what Crystal kind of rebuttal was, was she didn't, she wasn't sure about the statistics and the data on that. So mm-hmm. she didn't go toe to toe. 
with Saga on that particular point. But the other thing that I realized a lot of time, because I do think Saga is coming from with where the way he believes mm-hmm. and what he uh, thinks from a really good faith point, and I agree with a lot of what he's saying. But the thing that he misses and he never like confronts, and a lot of people who I find tackle the student de- uh, student debt thing from somewhat of a more of a good faith argument is they miss the main point. They said, "Okay, well, I don't want to cancel student debt because." Um, we're not changing the structure of the actual system, which I agree mm-hmm. with. I would love to mm-hmm. change the structure of the system, but mm-hmm. that's going to take an act of Congress to do. Mm-hmm. Biden, what the point they never take is Biden can cancel student debt by himself. So yes. they never deal with the fact that Congress is a dead end. Yes, this girl, yes. Eric, this is why I started, I literally started my, my, my radar this morning with this point and I wrestled with it because I was like, this is dry and boring. Like I should just get right into the meat of the dumb tweets so people don't click away. But I knew that that's what people are going to say. So I opened up by saying, do I think this is the most important program in America? No. Do I think this helps the neediest people in America? No. Would I design the program differently? Yes. Would I make colleges, public colleges, universities and vocational schools free at the same time as this happens? Yes. You know, would I would I give retroactive payments to people who have already paid off their debts? Yes. yes. <laughs> By the way, just to be clear, I would be a huge beneficiary of that too. The idea that I would like be looking down my nose at that, I've I've already paid like one hundred eighty thousand dollars. Do you know what I mean like? Um, yeah. I am I am in both of those camps. <laughs> you know? uh, I am both in the screwed because I already paid camp, and I have some leftover camp. You know. Then, yeah, I completely agree. And the last thing I was going to say about the same um, topic is the fact that um, what was the point? Oh, did I just lose it? So I said... I'm sorry, because I ranted. No, no, no. It's okay. It's okay. Um, I was talking about how uh, the whole thing with, you know, this is something that Biden can do by himself. Ah, damn it. I think I just lost the point. So sorry. Right, I can't remember. Oh, um, no, but, but no, but yeah, it's, it's Congress, and that that's why we're focused on it. It's not because it's the most important thing in the world or the, the most, you know, homelessness. I mean, a million things are obviously more important if I were going to prioritize but this is the thing. I didn't make it this way. I didn't. Oh, yeah. I'm not. I'm not Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema and the handful of others. Yeah. The last point I was going to make is I also I don't get the strategy of why are Democrats listening to would take any advice from Republicans about a policy, for example, like all these Mitt Romney coming out saying that oh if you do this and cancel this it's going to be disastrous. I don't care what Mitt Romney thinks about this. <laughs> right. It's, if the studies say that the more educate, like these people, these 45, 44 million people are more likely to be Democrats. Why would I not do something that can increase the chances of, I guarantee that, that Biden will gain more votes from the 44 million people who probably would have not voted at all. Right. Then lose. I think it's a net positive for him if he cancels the whole thing. Right. And Secretary Cardona out here, Secretary of Education is out here posting these lame Instagrams. Let me tell you, everybody should go follow him on Instagram and ratio the dickens out of him. Don't be violent. Don't be, you know, hostile or aggressive, you know. But, you know, he posts these like self-congratulatory posts about how we're canceling like 10,000 people's debt. (laughs) Like we don't know there's 44 million plus people with student debt. You know, like that's that's the game that they're starting to try to play. Also, this ten thousand stuff. I had this thought today, and maybe someone who's better at um, uh, uh, econ can can tell me if this makes sense. 
I, I, I suspect that that $10,000 number, because of the way interest accrues over the balance of all of these loans, I bet that that is cheaper than even one year of postponement. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So like if you have, if, if you're someone like me, for instance, and you had, uh, let's say you have $100,000 remaining and you have an 8% interest rate. You know, that's $8,000 you accrue a year in interest. So if you have anything over that, like the idea that you would, you you know, you obviously would want to take two years of suspension over $10,000 of cancellation. Oh, completely. Because especially if you can't pay, that that accrues right back in a second. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you get $10,000 in interest before the year is even up. Yeah, I, I, that's part of why my balance went up in the year after I graduated. I did a judicial clerkship. I made like no money that year. I lived at home and I, and I, but they told me to put my loans in forbearance. Now, suspiciously, they didn't tell me to do an income-based repayment plan. And I think maybe I got uh, exploited the way that so many people have in retrospect. I've but heard I that, that, that they said that that's a, a technique, a tactic that they yeah. people could have been in an income-based repayment plan, but they put them in forbearance instead. Yes, they put my my dumb, confused ass <laughs> into forbearance, and my loans went up by $10,000 that year. Yeah. And then another thing, one of the this last point I'm going to head out is the mm-hmm. fact that I don't get this thing that people like to talk about, oh, we're going to be forgiving doctors' debts and lawyers' debts. And the thing is, one, so what, poor kids can't become doctors and lawyers? Correct. And also another thing you do, like, I don't understand, like, we have, first of all, we have a shortage of doctors and nurses. Correct. In this country. And lawyers one of the things we need most in this country because i get this from army which i think he makes a very interesting point about the idea of um uh of we don't have access to uh, uh the average citizen doesn't have access to true access mm-hmm. to our legal system mm-hmm. and it's like because we don't have public defenders because mm-hmm. you can't afford to be the public defender mm-hmm. so, not like, to mention by the way there's no civil attorney access so something like only eight percent of americans ever have access to can ever afford an attorney in a civil case. You know, half the legal system is not happening in the criminal court. So obviously you, you have a right to an attorney. It, you, it might be an overworked public defender, but you have a right to an attorney in a, in, a, in a criminal matter. But if you want to just enforce your rights, we're talking about these labor rights, yeah. for instance, you know, these workplace issues, harassment issues, all of these things. So many people just never have a voice because they cannot afford an attorney. Yep. Yeah, so that's the only points I really want to talk about. This whole student that got me kind of like up in arms. Like, why don't people understand it? But thanks for talking this out with me. I really appreciate it. No, thank you, Eric. You you saw I was hype as hell on the internet today. I'm out here. I haven't uh-huh. trolled like this since like, who April 2020? You know, when that campaign ended and I was unemployed, <laughs> depressed, and wilding out on the internet every day. I do have to say, I do like Spicy Bianca a lot, so. <laughs> Y'all are going to get me canceled. I appreciate you, Eric. Have a good one. All right. I see Free Assange Chris was mad in the chat talking about don't leave me at the front of the queue forever. So that's fair. That's fair, Chris. What unmute yourself and let me know what's on your mind. Chris, I see you're unmuted, but I can't hear you. Okay, Chris, if you might be having that technical issue, go to the back of the line and I will bring you up again. I promise. Okay, hopping, hopping, hopping around. Let's bring back Fractal. How you doing, Fractal? Hey, how you doing? I'm doing very well. What's on your mind this evening? 
So you got me out here while I'm in Kroger's. So we'll see what kind of reaction I get. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, Am I going to hear um, like Vanessa oh, Carlton playing in the background? I don't know. <laughs> but uh, I did, and I'm just going to get a, a, a prescription. I'm not really shopping at Kroger's today. Unionize their people. So, but uh, You were breaking up a little bit, but I, I think you said Kroger's. See one. Go ahead. Yeah, I said I'm going to get a prescription. I'm not shopping at Kroger's. So uh, I want to say that, oh, the box is closed. So I'm leaving Kroger's. So I wanted to say a few things. Um, one, first off, how do you feel about the word actualize replacing organize? Look, I don't want to make too much of my thing about, obviously there's nothing wrong with organizing. Organizing is great and good and everyone should do it. I just objecting to the way it tends to come up in conversations about the limitations of our current ability to apply leverage in a way that is often derailing right. of those conversations. So it's not a semantic issue. It's not just like changing the word. I hear you saying like, let's use a more, you know, action oriented word. And then maybe that will change what people perceive to be organizing. Maybe, maybe, but I, I am a little weird. I don't want to be like the person who is, you know, hung up on the word organizer. Oh, there goes Brianna. She hates organizing, which is already what she said. <laughs> so I don't want to, I don't want to take that too far. Yeah. Right. They always blame you for everything. No, but the reason I said that is because I'm like, if you look at what Chris Smalls did, um, mm-hmm. which I loved your interview with him, by the way, it, he, he actualized mm-hmm. that, that independent worker organized union. Mm-hmm. Starts makes me wonder if he's related to Robert Smalls, if you're familiar with who he is in history. No, who's Robert Smalls? Robert Smalls, and I have to give Ryan Graham credit when he was on um, a podcast with Killer Mike. He was the one that escaped slavery from the South. Oh, became a representative. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he started the public school system. Mm -hmm. Hence why they want to get rid of public schools, too. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'm like, is he related to him? So, (laughs) but that was my first question because I kept hearing about we got to replace the word. I'm like, well, maybe moving and shaking. I was like, man, that's a little old school and 70s. But, um, no, actualize, because you have to organize in order to actualize things. We're just taking the next step. Uh, the thing I wanted to say about Twitter uh, and is the fact that Richard Wolf said it best. It's a mockery of free speech for somebody to spend $44 billion to buy mm-hmm. a, a free speech platform. And it, it just shows that democracy and capitalism are n- not together. They're very opposite. Mm-hmm. I think that It'd be cool if he does open the algorithm. That would be great. Mm-hmm. Um, I appreciate what Rebecca said earlier about the algorithm, not the algorithm, but Bolivia. Um, so I really appreciate that because everybody seems to forget that he mm-hmm. did say that mm-hmm. and that I liken everybody's hope to him and him kind of being like saying, Oh, well, if Trump were in office right now, we wouldn't be in this war with Ukraine. And it's like, y'all got to realize he funded and armed and trained those Nazis in Ukraine since he got in office undoing what Obama and um, and what uh, John Conyers did. And then with all the Russiagate pressure, he probably would have been rolled like he got rolled over Afghanistan. Mm. So my my last point is kind of to, it's kind of unique to your conversation with, uh, it's kind of a cross between your conversation with Glenn Greenwald and sort of with electoral politics. 
mm-hmm. uh, when y'all were talking about um, Taylor Lorenz and you brought up the point of you want to criticize her, but you don't want to kind of feed into the nasty, toxic, sexist, misogynistic hatred of her by mm-hmm. like people like Tucker Carlson and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I hear that. I'm just at the point with everyone, and I'm going to repeat this as many times as it needs to be said, I'm sick of the codependent morality and respectability politics of it all because it's like, yes, people are going to do that, but the best way I can explain it is I was working in banquet serving for a small business and I worked with a middle-aged white lady who was real cool, real progressive, very anti-racist racism. But we we're talking about the conversation of how sometimes people of color and whatnot, we can say things that could kind of like push people away that are in the white community. And I turned to her and I said, I get that. I understand that. And there may be resentment that we as black people, people of color, some people may say things that push people away. But to tell people who have been oppressed that I need to be made to feel comfortable in order to do the right thing. When have black people ever been made comfortable to fight for what was right? Who believed in Chris Smalls and made him comfortable for him to do what was right to try to save people's lives over 400 years? Like that's nonsense. And for people to say, we got to believe in the progressives. I hate it when Michelle Obama, former first lady said, we got to vote for Joe Biden enthusiastically. It's like, no, you don't need me to believe in you to do the right thing. Do it. The reason why Bernie had the edge that he had is because he did it when no one knew who he was for 40 years and he wasn't even perfect. So we need to get out of this mindset that we need to protect these people in order to protect the movement. Is the movement about them or is it about the movement and the people? Period. Like, otherwise, what are we doing here? Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to agree. I guess I just don't see Taylor Lorenz as the same enemy or obstacle that Glenn does. And some people Mm. were critical of my interview and they said I should have pushed back more against Glenn. But my honest feeling is the same way you wouldn't tell some black person that they're not allowed to be mad about whatever. I'm not going to tell Glenn, like Glenn has been through some stuff. And Glenn has accomplished a lot in his life and he is under a lot of very real threats to his life and his family's life in Brazil every day. He was, you know, subject to a home, a home invasion and was hogtied and all of the stuff that happened like within the last year, you know, he's lost friends um, to assassinations and politics and stuff in Brazil, political, you know, friends. And that's like real. So if Glenn has a, has a, you know, a particular frustration with Taylor Lorenz because he feels like the bar should be so much higher for people to complain about what stress they're under. I can respect that. I do respect that. Even if having not experienced what Glenn experienced and also having experienced some of what Taylor experienced and, you know, I don't like it. You know, I might not emphasize it. You know, Taylor might say that she's not emphasizing it, that she's kind of, you know, being clipped Mm -hmm. and framed in a way that even she doesn't, agree with and is frustrated by, you know, I, I just come from a different perspective. So while I really respect where Glenn is coming from, I don't see her as a toxic influence the way that Glenn does. And I think that frankly, a lot of the, like the, the, 
there's a lot of myth making around Taylor that has made her into something that I'm not really sure. It's hard for me to parse how much is it, of it is her own doing and how much of it is the way she's being framed by the media. Okay. And I, I honestly don't know the answer to that. So I'm a little reluctant to say, you know, you're misrepresenting your age and you're trying to pass yourself off as innocent and you are intentionally covering topics that are you know, doing pylons and individuals instead of talking about systemic issues. Maybe, maybe some of that is true. And again, I'd love to talk to her about it and get her in conversation with Glenn about it. I'm just not there yet, but I completely respect why Glenn feels that way. Right. And I'm just, I'm, I'm more so saying, I kind of see he's saying she's representative of something kind of like how Trump was the symptom of the issue in our country and the system. I see Taylor Renz as that as well. It's just more so I'm saying that in order for us to not call things out out of the fear of I'm going to feed into what other people are doing like that to me is the codependency that I think we're all conditioned to do. It just reminds me of the slave master uh, culture that we live in by making one person an example of something and they're like, oh, it applies to everybody. It's the same thing that happened with the slap. <laughs> Sorry to bring that up again. Mm-hmm. But that was the only thing I had a disagreement with Shannon Sharp of like, oh, I'm embarrassed because this is us. I'm like, these are two rich. These are three rich people we're talking about. Number one and two, they don't represent me. Like you know, yeah. So that's that. that that's yeah, that's sure, all I sure. felt on that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I guess I, I. It's like why not? Why not you yourself say these are what people say wrong in bad faith about Taylor Lorenz? Just like what we should have did under Obama. It was like ninety percent bad faith attacks on Obama and ten percent were good faith. And I think the Republicans were genius for what they did to keep us, the black community, from really talking about him like we should have. That's what we Mm, give up if we don't confront it. Yeah, I I, I completely – Glenn's broader point about the way that these mainstream outlets focus on individual behavior I think is completely solid, and I think I co-signed it entirely. My only quibble is whether or not it is fair to make – Taylor Lorenz, the spokesperson for all of that. Maybe ah, it is. For all Maybe of it. it isn't. For all of it. Right. She's just you know, she's like, just a new poster child right she, now. She, That's as, I, as I far as I know, she's a woman that covers media. Like she covers right. online media. Maybe you don't think there's a lot of value to that. You know, I think there is. I think that, that what happens on TikTok and stuff, you might think it's silly, but it matters. Same way stuff that happens on t- Twitter matters. It's it's a lot of people yeah. doing stuff and we need to know what's going on. Whether or not you agree with how she covers it, whether you think that she's now had a couple of instances of perhaps targeting people in a way that maybe is too much. Arguably, all of this is arguable, arguable, arguable. Like, I think that that's legitimate. That's a legitimate critique. But, like, putting t- the, the, the day of the TikTok stuff, and even before that, you saw, like, every – if you go on YouTube and look at all of the BreadTube accounts, they all had some picture of Taylor – with her mouth agape and big cartoon tears coming down her face talking mm. about crybaby Taylor. And, you know, I, I think that it's perfectly possible. I think we have more credibility by critiquing whatever she's substantively doing that people are upset about in her reporting than doing that stuff. Because there are people who are going to feed into those like identity politics narratives and say she's a, a woman. Like I, I used to say this when I was an editor at the intercept all the time, I had one journalist that I edited often who used to complain because I would say you need to anticipate your 
your opponent's argument and put it into the article. You shouldn't say this because you know it's going to get weaponized in this way. Can you say it in a different way so people can hear your argument? And he would say, exactly. well, it's not my job. He would say, oh, it's not my job to to deal, you know, to address what stupid people think or whatever. And I'd be like, well, no, it's quite literally your job. Do you want to be understood or do you just want to feel smug and right on the internet? Like I exactly. personally want to be understood. And sometimes I'll be writing. So I remember I was writing a piece early on and I was vetting it with some of my black friends and my mom. Cause you know, I was doing some identity politics piece and I always wanted to make sure like I wasn't be actually becoming the Candace Owens of the lab. And <laughs> I, I, right. I had a line in there that was a little spicy about like, um, uh, uh, old dude. I'm sorry. Who said I didn't see Bernie Sanders at the March on Washington? Oh uh, my gosh! Con- I forgot it, who said that. Was, was it Tony Shikos that said that? No, no, no. It was it was a it was a representative. It was it was really? either it was John, John Conyers or John. Was it John Lewis? I think it was John. Yes, Lewis. it was John Lewis. It was John Lewis. Okay, yes. so John Lewis says that stuff, and I and I was oh. really pissed off about it at the time, and I said something a little bit spicy like. I might have used. I didn't say. Like, maybe I, I don't remember what the word I used. But let's say I said something like he's a sellout. Maybe, let's just pretend I said something like that. My mom was like, "I don't know that that's necessary." And at first, I was like, "My mom's just being soft. She don't know. She don't know." But then I was right. like, "Well, no. I'm literally trying to communicate to people, including a lot of older black people who have a lot of respect and reverence for this person. I can make my point." By simply saying there's a conflict of interest between John Lewis taking all this money from X industry and the fact that he didn't support mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders. And I will be exactly. heard. Now, am I selling out by not calling him a sellout? Am I like less hard? Like, I don't know. But that's all I'm saying. Like so, so many times, like I some sub- always I substantively agree with Glenn, like nine times out of ten. But there right. are these moments that I, I sometimes because I have so much respect for him and he's so brilliant that I, I see the way that he, you know, people make a cart, you know, cart, make a cartoon out of him on the internet. And I just, I want him to be heard. And he obviously is a thick skin and he doesn't give a shit and God bless him, you know, love the guy. <laughs> but, but sometimes just because I want, I, my, my own interests, whatever it is, maybe it is because I am too soft. I want him to be heard and understood that I just I wish sometimes the tone were a little bit different, but I don't know. It's not that big a deal. Right. I don't think you're soft. I think you do something. And I think, I think it's, I think it's partly because it's, it's kind of cultural being black. And I'm not saying that people who are not black can't do this. And you also having being, I'm going to call you an honorary Detroiter because once again, oh four oh five Pistons. <laughs> but what I will say is, is that we have this culture of being respectfully irreverent. And that mm. is something that gives grace while still, it's kind of like how Dr. West can be mm-hmm. very cutting when yes. he's not too angry. And he just, people who oppose everything he believe in, believes in says, I just like this guy for some reason. And people respect him because he is respectfully irreverent of everybody. Like just Yeah, Dr. Russell will walk right up to the line of being like, uh, you're, you're okay, my you're, my brother, my sister. My brother, cool. my sister. <laughs> you're you know, you're like, cool, like, my brother, but... <laughs> Like, I call you my brother. I respect you as a human being. I don't think you're any less or better than me, but I'm going to call out the BS that you got going on. Miss me in my life and go learn what's, go learn what's right. And I'll let everybody else talk. I just want to say, Brie, that even if you think that this place is a sausage fest, um, and to anybody that's listening that may consider some as an incel, my wife always said to our male friends that if you actually consider 
and value women as friends. You don't have to worry about being in a friend zone. And just from listening to the men in this phone call, that's what I think you have going on here. So mm-hmm. I think that that's actually a compliment to who you really are, because you're not going to take any misogynistic bull crap. But I think that that just you have a lot of men that value women as friends. And I still have my female friends in my life. They they love my wife. They talk to her more than me now, of course. But <laughs> but like my oldest friendship is my best friend from middle school from and it's been like 20 years to the date now. So like, mm-hmm. I think that that's just a compliment to the type of environment you, you, uh, that you foster, you nurture and promote. So well, and thank, you, thank you for taking my call. You guys all heard it here first. You are not my simps. You are just respectful friends of mine. And I love that for us. Thank you. Fractal. Thanks for calling in. Let's hear from yep. Louisa. Break up the sausage fest. How are you doing? Louisa? That's probably not a very good term to use these days. My apologies. I'm an elder millennial. Louisa, can you unmute yourself? If not, I will come back to you later and I will go to Hannah. Hannah, what's on your mind? You got to press the unmute button, little microphone in the bottom right hand corner. Hi, sorry. I didn't realize I was in the line. My you bad. are in the line, Hannah. You don't have to be in the line. No peer pressure. Yeah, I don't have anything to say. Thank you. <laughs> okay, and it was nice to see your face. Thanks for calling in. Let's go to Jonathan. Jonathan, what's in your mind? Jonathan, you're a pro. I know you know how to do this. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> there we go. What's yeah, up, Jonathan? Anyway, well, firstly, firstly, never, ever apologize for the long radars. I shared the ever-living hell out of that one today uh i enjoyed it tremendously uh and uh yeah i wanted to talk about the uh the ari interview which Mm. i don't know if you i don't know if you saw my comment on the patreon page but i mean it's really impressive to yeah to add value after that many of his little book tour interviews this was a Mm. whole other conversation and the biggest value add yeah the biggest value add i think is something you have always seemed to understand so much better than just about anybody else out there. It's just how much people want to see somebody who will fight, like mm-hmm. really fight injustice. And it kind of goes back to what that earlier caller was saying about electoralism, mm-hmm. which is a lot of us didn't mind throwing that money at Bernie when he was fighting. Like we mm-hmm. were like, yes, like take my money, please. And then, you know, at that point that you brought up with Ari, when he, he kind of pulled his punches, like pulled back the choke chain on Zephyr Teach out, said, no, Joe Biden is my friend. No, mm-hmm. everybody on this stage can win. Uh, it kind of felt like we had just spent like, you know, a hundred bucks on lottery tickets and we didn't win. Mm-hmm. And it's, mm-hmm. it's that kind of like dirty, like feeling like we just flushed all that down the toilet. Or like burn them, and, didn't even scratch them off, didn't even play the number. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that like that, I think, is what has people upset. And I think a lot of people would be surprised at how much and how willing like a lot of people like if you had a great candidate that actually was, say, somebody like Shama Sawant, Mm -hmm. who uh, is an activist first and just happens to have been elected and kept doing activism after she got elected, just how much you know that old coalition i think could easily get back together and basically start 
throwing money at him and be like, here, take my money. We'll, you know, you say organize, we'll do that too. But, yeah. uh, you know, just people will do whatever they can to, you know, push somebody who kind of gives them that feeling. Yes, I see the same injustice you see. And I don't care if I win or lose, I'm going to fight. And I'm going to make sure that the people doing it, they may not lose that fight, but they're going to come out of it with some bruises and they're going to think twice before they do it again. Like yeah. there's going to be a cost to it. And that's, I think the craving for that is, is still out there. Mm-hmm. It's, it's been out there. It's still out there. And some of the frustration you see, like people are saying all this stuff like, Oh, electoralism doesn't matter. And to a certain extent, like that is a worthy conversation to have because historically uh, organization was a part of how the electoral project was made to work. And, you know, the elected officials and, you know, the political institutions are, you know, means to an end and they can be used properly only if you have like this kind of grassroots organized thing that will hold people accountable. But, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, these, at least in terms of these one-off things that, uh, you know, can, at least get the ball rolling, get the momentum going, get people energized, make people think there's a chance to actually make a change. Uh, You know, I think somebody who's willing to do that and do that fight and generate that momentum and generate that faith um, is, is a very powerful thing. And, you know, I think that's the lesson we should take away. With Nina Turner's race, like um, a week out, uh, election date, I was thinking about this. I was having this fantasy that, you know, one way perhaps to have warded off some of the interference from the democratic party and all these dark money groups would be, and obviously would excite the hell out of a lot of leftists would be to say, if you screw with me, I am running in the general election as a third party candidate. And it is a heavily blue district and it always goes blue except maybe it would imperil that possibility. And like, you know, if you don't want to end up with a red candidate, then don't F with me. Do you know what I mean? To make some conditions to come out openly with that kind of a threat. And even now, I mean, I think I looked it up. I think the Republican candidate got like 17% of the vote or something. So even if she did split with Chantel, like it's still pretty unlikely that the Republican would win. There is a world. I mean, that's what happened to India Walton, right? India Walton won Mm -hmm. her primary fair and square. And that, and Chud just got into the race anyway and then ended up beating her with that like writing campaign, a writing campaign, you know, and all of these local Democrats wouldn't disavow him. Right. They, they pull the thing like against Bernie, like, will you support him if he's the eventual nominee? Like they did all that, like bait and switch. So I don't see if the precedent has been set, you know, in Buffalo, why Senator Turner shouldn't feel perfectly entitled to keep swinging and the way that so many leftists would be excited to see, because there's nothing more adversarial than to the Democratic Party than running as a third party against a Democrat. So yeah, I think that's I, exactly that's, right. Yeah, I, I think, I think that, that. Yeah, I yeah. don't think it should just be a fantasy. I think that's like uh, you know what they uh, there's a, a term for that that uh, you know we call the Samson option, like Samson from the Bible. Like I think mm. it was originally used by uh, by Cy Hirsch to refer to. Uh, the Israeli nuclear strategy, like basically mm-hmm. if Israel's overrun that they're going to use their nukes and bring it down on top of the the entire Levant. 
so mm-hmm. like the Samson option, like I will destroy this entire thing. I will burn it all down. And like that is that would have been the correct answer on that stage when he was standing there with um, uh, what's his name? The guy from uh, Bloomberg. Mm-hmm. OK, uh, basically, when they were asking him the question, like, would you you know, vote for whoever the eventual nominee is? The correct answer was not if this chucklehead wins. Right. Okay? If this chucklehead <laughs> wins, I will never stand idly by <laughs> while this man buys his way to the White House, to the Democratic ticket. Uh, with his billions of dollars, okay, I will run third party, I will take a flamethrower to this entire project, mm-hmm. okay, and I will do everything possible. Like, I don't care if Trump wins and this entire, you know, country burns to the ground. Like, I will never allow Michael Bloomberg, who, by the way, is exactly like Trump. I mean, he's a Republican, mm-hmm. okay, mm-hmm. and he was on that stage, and people treated him with respect, and mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, he's he bought his way in there, okay, he's perfectly entitled to be up there. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, whereas Marianne Williamson, okay, mm-hmm. definitely not entitled to be up there. She shouldn't have mm-hmm. been up there in the first place is what people were saying. Like, mm-hmm. and that was somebody that like actually had something interesting to say. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like this is like, that would have been the correct answer. That's what people wanted to see. And that was another area in which, you know, like I would say like Bernie choked, like that was a huge opportunity missed. That was a huge mistake. And that mm-hmm. is what you just expressed is 100% the correct strategy because ultimately like these people when they go into full panic mode they show who they are like these powerful people like if you're going to disrupt the status quo like that's the way you have to do it you have to make them afraid you have to make them uh panic and you have to make them make missteps and basically let them you know do the work for you let them be be hanged with their own petard and, yeah. uh, or hoist with their own petard. Sorry, yeah, that's what yeah. Shakespeare said. Hoist with their yeah, own yeah, petard. Yeah. I and, see neoliberal haters is like, yeah, like Trump did that. We need a Marjorie Taylor Greene on the left. I think that's right. I think it's pathetic that we have people like Marjorie Taylor Greene who have like no scruples and mean stand for nothing, who are willing to stick the landing. And we have these progressives that have like every poll and the people and everything behind them are financially independent. Don't actually need the party to raise money for them to stay in the office. There's like very, there's a dwindling number of excuses for why they don't behave this way. And they still don't. Yeah. And I I think that's the lesson we should have learned from Trump. Okay. Mm -hmm. What Trump did was, you know, he, he essentially punctured a lot of sacred cows, like made a lot of these people clutch their pearls um, you know, that sort of thing, that kind of disruption made people mistakenly believe that he would fight for what he said because he was so belligerent with those other Republican establishment candidates. They thought, OK, when he gets into office, he's going to behave like that and he's going to actually fight a lot of these, um, you know, establishment, you know, elites that have been, uh, you know, doing things like closing down the factories in our towns and, Uh, you know, costing our jobs and, you know, allowing, uh, you know, developers to come in and and gentrify our area and drive our rents up and like all the things that people are frustrated by all across the country, you know, it's whatever, you know, the background, like, you know, even, um, you know, like he had a surprisingly broad coalition. And frankly, Bernie had, you know, could have poached a lot of those same people. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason that he was able to do that was because in the beginning, 
he looked like a scrapper and like he looked like he was going to disrupt all of that stuff. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm sure that he wanted to on a lot of levels. But uh, at a certain point, I guess uh, he either miscalculated or I really want to read Ari's book. Like I like I need to get a hold of that book and read it. It's good. I will say I know that some people express some disappointment that they felt like he pulled punches and stuff. But I will say, like, obviously, it, it, much less of it is new to me than it will be to you. But I found it to be the account felt very real to me. It felt very, like my version of events tracks with this very strongly. And it was kind of a flashback and some good and kind of painful ways. Now, there are some things that, you know, I debated our, uh, asking Ari about this stuff. And maybe, but I didn't have time to kind of talk to him about it beforehand. And I didn't want to ambush him. And I was rushing to go to a flight because I had to go to Phoenix to debate Charlie Kirk, which is a whole other thing we'll be talking about next week. But I like he, you know, he says in the book that he's one of three deputy campaign managers. Is anybody going to ask why we had three deputy campaign managers? Why like did we? There, there was some stuff happening, you know, and. I'm waiting for the person to like tell that full story, you know, cause I, I, I know that it was happening, but I don't know the granular details, the way the people in the room did, but there was like some management stuff going on. There were some issues going on and I'm, I was really hoping for a little bit more of that meat. Um, why there were so many like personnel issues. Uh, and he alluded to some of the stuff about how Bernie not being, you know, being kind of like a micromanager and not delegating and relinquishing control over stuff made it difficult to like roll out policies in a way that was predictable and coordinated with the video team so we could have social media and have press releases. And in the same way that Senator Warren throughout the summer of 2019 gained so much steam by like having these very well coordinated policy releases over a period of weeks. Um, that was very frustrating. It was very frustrating from a comms perspective. But again, we don't get a lot of that in the book. But there was, are also all of these details that I wasn't aware of because I wasn't on the road and I wasn't with the advanced team the way that Ari was. And he had such an intimate relationship with them. And they really are the unsung heroes of, of the campaigns. And the story about, like, cleaning Bernie's blood off the floor <laughs> with the towels was, like, a little surreal. And obviously it's moving to read about how the heart attack unfolded and how, you know, the advanced team really you know saved his life and so I, I think it's worth a read for sure yeah and you know if you know kind of anything about uh you know i don't know him personally obviously but i've read his stuff before and i know like something about what to expect from him and i know he's also very fiercely loyal to bernie and there's some things that he's just not gonna put in there Mm-hmm. Uh, because he would worry about what Bernie would think of him telling that story in that way. And like, maybe Bernie actually wouldn't take it personal, but uh, I like, I can understand like, you know, based on, you know, there's certain, like, obviously uh, his views in mind don't line up on everything. And, you know, yeah, kind of like mine are actually way closer to yours. Uh, so for the same things that like I would probably disagree with him on, like you disagree with him on and mm-hmm. you actually represented us all very well in that interview. But like, he's definitely one of the good guys. And like, mm-hmm. I, I want to hear his, his account of what went on there. Uh, because like, you know, I did not certainly have your, your level of access to what was going on. And this is, this is really all new to me. And like, these are, he is a great storyteller. Yeah. And I'll own my own loyalty issues too. It's, it's 
difficult. I, you know, Ari really went to bat for me, and a lot of a lot of times during the campaign, he was really instrumental in in hiring me and advocating for me to join the campaign in the first instance. And you know, that's why you know maybe I, I admit I she admitted <laughs> like I I'm, I don't I don't know I didn't go as hard. I didn't like push on some of the things like to unpack what happened with all of this the people because I know he has relationships with these people and. I'm not trying to just be messy. I want some stuff out for the historical record and I don't want to necessarily tell the story because I can't do a complete job of it. And it's going to seem a little bit like a hit job coming from me as opposed to like a substantive analysis of where things went wrong. But I really am hopeful. Maybe I'll talk to him about it off the record and see if he'll come back and never talk about that stuff. But I'm packing some of that because as a, as a kind of corporate person in that environment, relatively speaking, like as a person who's worked in an office, (laughs) Um, with a bunch of Bane types, I was surprised by how campaigns are run. And I don't think it's just Bernie's campaign. I think it's, you start like a million dollar organization, multi-million dollar organization that's only supposed to last one year and you get it going in like weeks. And that's just, it's always a little bit messy. But I found myself thinking, we need to sprinkle a little... Just a little bit of McKenzie magic over here because some of those management stuff. <laughs> like, we need to just get this a little bit snatched. You know what I mean? Just, like, gather this yeah. a little bit. Who's in charge here? Because, you know, Ari was originally chief of staff. And then we did not have a chief of staff. You know, get my drift? <laughs> not, you know, not like I. I'm guessing it was chaotic, but like somebody has to be making decisions. Nobody was chief of staff. There was no chief of staff. This is what but I'm then saying. How did, how, then how did it work? There was no chief of staff, my friend. I don't know what to tell you. Ari was chief of staff, but he, you know, originally Renee Spellman was deputy campaign manager. Maybe she'll come on the show someday. She's great. Love Renee. Probably have never heard of her. Don't know her name. But she was the original uh, deputy campaign manager. She ended up going out to California and being put in charge of California for reasons that someone else should explain. She successfully won us California. So kudos to Renee. Um, I just also am really fond of her because we're the same age and she's really cute and black. And I was just very proud of her. Um, And then uh, the uh, Ariana, um, uh, Sorry, Ariana was the, the comms director, and then she became a third um, deputy campaign manager, and we got a new comms director. So Ariana Jones. So that's you know, I want so I want to like hear that three, story. So it was it was th- like basically like three chiefs of staff, except like they were no deputy three campaign deputy managers. campaign managers, zero chiefs of staff. Because, you know, Ari was on the road. The deputy campaign manager is, like, with the candidate. You know, so he was on the so road with Bernie. Like, they were all? He was on the road with Bernie. Renee was in California. And Ariana, you know, was serving a different role, still kind of comms adjacent, but was not a chief of staff. I don't, I to be honest, and I mean none of this with any disrespect at all or malice or anything. I'm just, like, stating the fact. I don't think I spoke to her after she stopped being comms director. I don't think we exchanged even one word <laughs> after she stopped being comms director in like, I don't know, August or something of 2019. So I that's common. Like I that don't kind know. of bedlam. I, I don't know. 
I don't know anything. That's my first and only campaign. I'm just a simple country lawyer. <laughs> well, it, it definitely, it definitely was, you know, roaring along somehow up until a certain point that it wasn't. So uh, they must have been doing some things right, and you know, it'd be worth a po- a good thorough post mortem at some point uh, when people feel maybe a little more comfortable, you know. I guess uh, airing some of the things they don't feel comfortable airing now, but I'm hoping David Sirota will write it because David Sirota is going to say yeah. what I want to say, <laughs> and he and he has the facts because he was closer to the king and all of that. At yeah, least that's for a the other best five dollars a month that I that I have. You know, basically, like everything in life is a scam these days. So finding <laughs> things that are just like five bucks a month, so well spent that I get so much value out of. Sirota is the <laughs> other one. Like you and Sirota, like best you know, $10 a month. Like I am getting way more than $10 a month worth out of YouTube. Well, I'm glad you feel that way. I definitely feel that way about David Sirota. I said it before and I'll say it again. I don't know. I think the left wouldn't know anything. It wouldn't know what to argue. It wouldn't have basic reporting to rely on. If not for the Davids, David Sirota and David Dan, but particularly I have a fondness for David Sirota because what an ally he was in the campaign and what like a just complete mensch he is. Yeah, I tell them both that uh, I rely on them, you know, the Davids to tell me what I should be angry about today. (laughs) But I'm really only half joking. Like, I really like I feel like they really keep me on top of what's actually going on and the news that I actually need to know. And that like I can't you can't really put a price tag on that. Just like, you know, being able to, uh, you know, conduct an interview in a way that actually you know, extracts new information and, you know, um, kind of probes a lot of these people in a way that, um, you know, they maybe weren't planning on, but reveals a lot of critically important information. Like you, you really can't put a a price tag on that. And yeah, I'm just, I I don't want to take up any more of your time. Thank you. I I love getting gassed up and I appreciate you gassing me up, Jonathan, but I I have to force myself to move on. But I think I appreciate you. I appreciate your comments in the Patreon and thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All right. Silver Rose. How can I not see this adorable little cartoon pink lady and the name like Silver Rose and not call on you? Unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind. Hello. Thanks. Um, And I really love your show. And I guess I wanted, I was wanted to talk about the Twitter and Elon Musk. Sure. And I think, well, I guess this is my kind of slightly contrarian take on it. Like, I think it's bad for Twitter to be, I mean, to be depending on billionaires to do, to like save us or whatever. But I feel like since it's not like Twitter is going to be nationalized or it's going to be broken up, I don't think it's particularly important. But I think that even if he's obviously, I don't think he's a good person, I think that like now Twitter, I, I think that it's maybe a positive development because um, at least he's saying he's going to uphold free speech. So it's good, so it's easier for people, like if he starts banning leftists or stuff like that, there's like some sort of like hypocrisy. You can mm-hmm. be like, oh, hypocrisy. Whereas now the people, the people who are in charge of Twitter, like, like, uh, what's his name? I don't like, I remember even like a Pamal or the guy who's in charge. I remember there was some statement he made that like, uh, that there was something that we should be really concerned about, like online safety and stuff like that. And I mm-hmm. do think that a lot of that and like misinformation. And I think that even if it's like fake from Elon Musk, I would prefer 
to have Twitter be in the hands of at least someone where you can like kind of hypocrisy gotcha him and like try to hold him accountable to some sort of principle that he claims to have as opposed to just like like I mean because it's not like I mean of course because it's not like now the people it's like a private company so I mean maybe they're not billionaires but it's not like now so I don't know I think I don't Mm -hmm. think it's like great so I don't think this is like a really big deal and it's like super cringe to people who are like like um, I I find like the people who are like both super against it and super pro it like this is going to save anything it's like seems kind of like I don't think it's going to make that much of a difference or whatever like it's kind of cringe on both sides but like I think that like on total is probably a bit of a positive development and I don't really understand the whole like I understand from like um some sort of if you're like really concerned about Trump going back or about like uh like I understand the concern that uh he that he if people are really concerned about like misinformation on Twitter which I think is a bit um, I think is a bit overplayed or whatever, then I understand being mad about it, but I don't think that he's gonna be worse for, like, leftist free speech, um, because it's not like the people who are running it now are, like, super pro-leftist or pro-union either, so I don't really, I don't know. Yeah, so I, I hear, there, there's an argument that I kind of get that says Elon Musk is the kind of guy, despite having more money than God, and Really, he should just disappear to a private island uh, surrounded by calorie-free desserts that exist but aren't available to the rest of the public and, you know, beautiful women and, like, puppies and whatever else makes him happy. Like, he is the kind of person that is sensitive and ego-driven and actually cares enough about what people think that he could be bullied by Twitter into doing the right thing. In some instances, at least, like I, I see that argument because there, there, there is a personality type like that, and, and Trump was kind of like that. He was very clearly influenced by public opinion, and sometimes it would bend the knee and capitulate and, and sulk over being basically owned online. Um, however, in the grand scheme of things, my concern is a little bit less with the even individual bullying moments that he's done, even like the labor issue where he had to take down the tweet because it was considered to be a labor violation, um, you know, bullying uh, Tesla employees. I think that the main concern that we can only really anticipate at this point is him using Twitter to basically manipulate stock prices and advantage himself from a business perspective. And I have a big issue with that. You know, I have a, I have a big issue with that. And I think we're going to see that pan out. And hopefully I can get Matt Stoller on the show soon to unpack some of those kinds of issues and like the broader, like kind of antitrust framework here. But look on the whole, I'm with you. I I think it's neither the best or the worst, but I wouldn't put a whole lot of stock personally in the idea that he can be made to do the right thing by the left. He has shown a degree of hostility toward the left. I think that is almost more pointed than the neolibs that were controlling things before this this graphic, did you see the graphic that was floating around today? Yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> that little stick figure thing that it, that suggests that he believes that the left has gone so far left and it's not that he's closer to the right, it's just that the middle has moved yeah. so far to the left. No, I agree. Like, I, to be honest, I, it's true, I do. And actually, to be honest, maybe it's because I don't really understand the whole business side of, like, how he would manipulate, but I guess maybe I'll talk about it with Matt Stoller. So I think that is a genuine concern. And I mean, of course he is. And I do think it's a bit ambiguous because I'm, um, I mean, I have mixed feelings because I think personally his politics are obviously terrible. And, but I mean, like if, and libertarians have bad politics, although I do think like making them in charge of speech things 
is better than if they were in charge of like government spending or especially but i do think like for example one of his con like and i do have mixed feelings because on one side on one side he said something that uh, for him what free speech means is um that uh he's not doesn't want to censor anything below like more than what the governments want because like mm -hmm. if people want less free speech then they can just uh do that by government and so on one hand I mean, obviously, that's like a, not an actual definition of free speech. But on one hand, I think that's like a good move, although it is kind of confusing because it doesn't mean that there's going to have different Twitters for different com like different countries. I don't really know how that would really work. Well, also, but that's that's what everyone kind of thinks, right? Like all of these companies are trying to figure out how to look at the law in the books and enforce a standard that wouldn't get them sued is basically what what is constraining mm -hmm. everybody. Right. But, you know. And this is not a public square, but we haven't quite figured out. There's, it's not an actual constitutional obligation, but they're basically all. I had, a, I had a debate with Glenn Greenwald about this back when we were at The Intercept together. That can be found somewhere on the Internet back in like 2018, because it's the same issue over and over again. We all all we got. All we got is basically the framework that has been set out by us by all of the litigation that's happened around free speech since the beginning of this country, around the First Amendment. And everyone's trying to approximate that. But when you're a corporation that's trying to promulgate rules, there's different competing incentives, and it's difficult to ascertain. Like, the law doesn't know. You know, that's why we have all of these laws. There's conflicting case law. It's, it depends on your jurisdiction. Well, Cases go to court because they're hard answers. Well, I guess I meant more, um, I think what he meant was more like just kind of the first amendment, like just applying the rule that like if something is harassment or like child porn or stuff like that, like, of course, that should be banned, but like not, so like, but not if it's like, um, but what's harassment? Well, kind of applying like the first amendment definition. Well, there's no, I, I mean, there's no first amendment, um, I see you what know, you mean prohibition against me, you know, calling you, let's say a pejorative in the you know, silver. If I, if I call you a, <laughs> if I call you the N word right now, there's no first, <laughs> you know, there's no first amendment prohibition that's against the, okay, me doing so guess, that. No. But yes. And I guess that's the thing is, well, I guess that's, a, that's the thing, which I think he wouldn't censor, which I guess this is the thing where I don't know, maybe this is a bit of a controversial take is I guess I don't really think that, um, I think the risk of being like not censorious enough, like I do feel like sometimes, um, online harassment is a bit overplayed not that it's not a real thing but in terms of how how much of a big deal it is in terms of like i think it's maybe i think it's a bit better to be a little not censorious enough um insert in maybe like there's a bit more of like slurs on twitter and that's a problem and to maybe what you could do is like i think um and like people would need to block people more or that kind of thing then then do it the other way and especially since it seems like so arbitrary, because of course, like Twitter, since now Twitter is mostly like the people in charge are mostly speak English or whatever, are interested in U.S. politics. It seems like that's where their focus is. But I'm sure there's like lots of slurs in other languages that don't even get caught. Or I don't even know how it works, but it all just seems mm. so arbitrary. But I do think where I think there is maybe a concern with Elon Musk is I did also see him tweet. This is kind of along the line of um that like stupid graph or whatever was some tweet where he was like oh the point of uh, twitter is really good if you have a policy that annoys both the far left and the far right mm -hmm. which does yeah, seem like that. a really stupid angle because that's like to me that almost indicates even though i don't think that's what he wants maybe it's just him being stupid but like that indicates that you would want more censorship because a policy that would like to me it's the opposite like a more free speech policy would be good for the far left and good for the far right and it's like the more moderates 
So it didn't really make any sense. So it's that. So it so it seems like some of his theory because it's 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 a bit incoherent. But I don't know. But in no, you know, you're correct. (laughs) (laughs) But it's spot on. But so I think yeah, no, I don't think he's like particularly. I mean. uh, I don't know, but I do think it is funny that, like, someone, because I do think the whole electric car, I do think it's funny that, like, he's now so seen as, like, right-wing, and of course, like, you know, in the, I understand that from a far-left perspective, but from the more, like, lib kind of perspective, like, more, like, the people who are more okay with capitalism, it is a bit funny, and it is kind of funny seeing all these right-wing people kind of defend, since he was such a big, like, you could easily see him being stereotyped as, like, kind of uh, out of touch, like, a uh, billionaire who like uh, is like doing is like uh, I mean like obviously because he's known for uh, Tesla or whatever for electric mm-hmm. cars so I do think it is funny that he managed to, to be kind of coded right wingers I don't know I, I do find that kind yeah of- and it has shifted I mean it's the same with Zuckerberg right all of these people it, when I was graduating college like all you wanted to do was work for Facebook during the Obama era, like the best thing to do is to be associated with Facebook. He was like a friend of the White House. He was, you know, exactly what we were all supposed to be aspiring to be. And all of a sudden, I don't know when it turned, but everyone became against big tech. We, you know, I, I well, I know when it turned. It was all the Russia stuff. It was Trump. And, you know, it got the blame was laid at Mark Zuckerberg's feet. And that seemed to be the, the tipping point. And it is interesting. You're right. These things are coded one way or the other, and it's not necessarily the case that anything has changed at all. There was this new revelation about um, Sheryl Sandberg, you know, famously a Facebook, whatever her title was, senior, um, who was like suppressing court records of her boyfriend's domestic abuse of his ex. So that she wouldn't look bad dating him. Like all this messy stuff oh is coming God. out now. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is, is why Twitter is so great. Is she like the big person who wrote some like feminist book or lean in? Yeah, girl, lean in. <laughs> <laughs> she leaned all the way in to uh, suppressing. I think it was a restraining order that she had against the guy he was date- she was dating. His ex had oh a restraining order against her then boyfriend. So, I mean, like that's what I'm saying. I'm not trying to say everyone has to have a perfect you know, life. Sometimes, you know, you date messy dudes. But the point is that, like, it, it's just the, the kind of coverage that is out now, the kind of stories that get written about these people now are very different. And I think you're right. It's not necessarily substantive. Although I do think the critical eye that's being turned toward big tech is more accurate and useful than I mean, the I blind think it's eye. Good, that was, but I, yeah. think, I think it's good, or I'll let other people, but I think it's good in, like, theory to be critical of big tech in the sense that I think it should be, like, either broken up or nationalized or something. But I do think the reason that a lot of libs are critical for it is, like, completely, like, the wrong reasons. Yeah, it's like, like Russiagate I mean, stuff. Yeah, and also the whole, like, idea that somehow all this censorship is, like, somehow... And I don't I don't want to be, like, I don't think... I think, like, people who overemphasize and who make their whole... And this is my problem with some of Greenwald's stuff. Like, I agree with him on the substance, but I do think he's a bit too laser-focused on, like, as if uh, censorship and free speech issues are, like, the most important or the only issues or whatever. So I'm not at all like that. But on those issues, I do think people who somehow think that this kind of censorship or, like, is somehow benefiting the left like are completely delusional like if anything banning trump is help is is obviously like like who are is obviously helping uh the right because like 
I don't even it, the whole I, the whole theory like I feel like it's like these big tech like maybe it's like I don't think this censorship is actually helping the left and it just seems completely stupid and it just seems to create so much resentment on the right and there's so much on like you'll have like Ben Shapiro or all these right wing people who like talk nonstop of like oh we're under attack and so like having all like the whole laptop thing and having all these little instances it just makes them more and more aggrieved and I mean, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's, it's kind of like being canceled, how being canceled can be your ticket to a lot of lucrative opportunities sometimes, you know, yeah. like if you get, like I saw, um, you know, friend of the show, you guys are going to be so mad at me. I know, whatever. Friend of the show, Jackson Hinkle, I think was banned from Twitter for a week or something like that. And I saw him on online today or yesterday talking about, you know, come, I'll talk about it. You know, there's a way that you... You can kind of get a little bit of like credit, street cred by having been canceled. We all did it. Like Rising did it when they got canceled for a week. Um, you know, Breaking Points. Every, everybody does it. Like, you know, we all do it because there is a certain amount of like bad boy street cred that you get from feeling like you're the underdog and there's this big powerful entity against you and people want to come and support you as a consequence of that, right? So that's not to say it's like okay or like worth it to be banned for a week or to be canceled or anything like that. But there is this like weird relationship where you can start to wear it as a badge of honor. So in some ways, like, yeah, banning Trump, you know, some of the people who got blocked today, you know, getting blocked is a great example of that. When you get blocked, you retweet that you got blocked by some big account and it makes you feel like, you know, you got under somebody's skin. That's the thing you do, right? Which is why I don't block people with big accounts. I will block small accounts that if they retweet that they got blocked, no one will see it because they have like 50 followers. But if you're an account of over like a thousand followers, I'll just mute you even if you're really annoying me because I don't want to give you the satisfaction of like parading around the block screen grab. No, yeah, exactly. And I think that even if it's not good for, I don't think it's always good for people personally. Like I think that a lot of people who are canceled or who are who are censored or whatever, like it's personally bad for them. Like, but I'm saying that it's good for the for the right wing in general or for mm-hmm. like the kind of free speech. Like even if it's not good, like even if it's Trump getting uh, banned isn't good for, or I mean Trump is a bad example. But even if like some random right winger being banned on Twitter isn't good for him personally. I think it's good for the right wing in general. That's more what I'm saying. Yeah. But yeah, well, I hear that. So anyway. this is, I'm glad you called in. These are some interesting perspectives and I wonder if anyone is going to piggyback on them or have any pushback, but thank you, Silver. I hope to see you in the chat again in the future. Okay. And I loved your show. <laughs> thank you, Silver. Uh, let's do Alex. Cause that looks like a new face. Unmute yourself and let me know what's on your mind, Alex. Then I'm going to go back to the front of this queue. Cause I know I, you guys have been very patient. Got it. Up there. It's working. Yes, Alex. What's on your mind this evening? Hey, yeah, I've got a few uh, things I could talk about, but I I think one of the first things I want to talk about is student loans because that kind of came up. I Mm -hmm. am a graduating medical student, so we're talking about doctors and lawyers, and I'm Mm -hmm. ending with about $200,000 of student loan debt, and um, it is such a a pressure point that Mm -hmm. that kind of forces people to go into higher-paying specialties and stuff like that. Anesthesiology, plastic surgery. And so I was, in, I, I, I was at the yeah. crossroads of going between, you know, kind of primary care or versus emergency medicine. And I ended up picking emergency medicine because, I mean, the pay is double and, you know, that's part of the calculation. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. the idea that like, oh, well, we'll be paying, do- uh, you know, paying off the loans of these like rich doctors and lawyers. Like, look, I grew up incredibly poor. I, I had to take on a massive loan burden to get through this. And then now I'm coming into residency. I'm going to be getting paid like $15 an hour, which I mean, mm-hmm. yes, is better than some people, but I'll be a freaking doctor. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's absurd to, to, to try to use the argument that, that it like, like will, it ultimately disproportionately benefit people that make make a little bit more yeah but it'll also disproportionately benefit like i i think if you look at the numbers it'll disproportionately benefit overall women of color the most mm-hmm. but um that was kind of just an aside because i came up but my the point i wanted to talk about overall no no, no before you move on though i, I want to just say about that it is also one of those people what, who was it maybe it was joe manchin was complaining on the internet somebody from some Low-income state where there was a real deficit of doctors and hospital beds was complaining about student debt cancellation today and, and the point you're making about paying off doctors' loans being inequ- inequitable. And it is so important to push back against that by saying you need to keep doctors in your state. You need yeah. to incentivize people to want to go to community health centers. And nobody who's paying back a $200,000 loan is going to go and be a small-town doctor in West Virginia. And Virginia needs small-town doctors. West Virginia. And Virginia, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if you look at what's on the table now, I mean, Biden's talking about $10,000 of student loan cancellation, which will probably only be for undergraduate loans. So that won't even benefit doctors and lawyers, mm-hmm. first of all. And I think the $50,000 plan that, that Schumer is, you know, uh, talking about, I, I don't think that cancels graduate debt either. So I really think it's just kind of a talking point that that's used to to try to kind of derail it. But yeah. But yeah, the other thing I want to talk about was kind of accountability. I mean, I think the conversation was happening between like electoral politics and kind of like almost like labor organizing. And I think both of those spheres, I I, I mean, I'm pretty burnt out on electoral politics. And and I and I think like one of the few uh, kind of like sparkles of a hope I have is in like labor organizing. But even in that space, there's still sort of this lack of accountability. Like I'm in Nevada and we had the culinary union, which I mean, I, I don't know if everyone remembers back in the in the primary where the mm-hmm. culinary union endorsed. I don't know. Like, I don't. Remember, I don't remember if they just didn't endorse or if they endorsed Biden or what. But obviously, all the, all the you know rank rank and file supported Bernie. Yeah. And then right yeah. now we have we have Amy Valella running against uh, one of our you know faux progressive Congress Congresswoman Dina Titus and and. We've, she's she's getting all these labor endorsements saying she's so strong on labor, but she, I mean, right out the gate endorsed Hillary Clinton, right mm-hmm. out the gate endorsed Biden. She endorsed Biden when he was polling at like 2%. So the idea that she is like some labor champion mm-hmm. is just completely absurd, but all of these unions are, are, are uh, endorsing her. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's just kind of a lack of accountability overall. And, you know, whether it's the electoral space or the organizing space, I think we just really need to be holding people accountable. And it's something that really resonated, resonated with me with your conversation with uh, Shama Sawant, uh, mm-hmm. just to, to be kind of uh, accountable to, to, to like the rank and file of an organization. And, and I don't know what we need to do to get there, but like, man, we need to get there. Yeah. I, I would love to hear more. I mean, Shama obviously got into it. She's the person I've heard speak most forcefully and openly about the disconnect between the leaders of these organizations and the rank and file, the fact that, you know, Chris Smalls chose to form a new union instead of being absorbed into a pre-existing one, I think speaks, speaks volumes. And I would love yeah. to talk to a labor historian slash lawyer about that decision-making 
and more depth. Cause I think a lot of traditional organizers are a little bit sensitive about getting into that particular issue. Cause they have relationships with these unions. Um, yeah, you know, when I had, um, why do I always do this? I know this woman's name. I need a little sugar to wake me up myself back up. I'm the um, worst with names. So you know, uh, you know, there's no no shortcuts. <laughs> no shortcuts. Yeah. Someone in the chat's gonna do it for me. But you know, the Queen Queen Bee, you know, the best our our best lefty labor organizer woman um who I had on the show last year, even she, you know, she's so brave and I really appreciate her everything that she had to say. But there you can hear in the interview sensitivity around being too critical of union leadership. And frankly, I think you can gain a lot of credibility with conservatives who have been making certain kinds of critiques about union capture. Now, they go overboard and they just don't believe in the whole institution at times. But I think that there can be some credibility gained by saying, like, these are not perfect systems. Every system can be captured and we should be trying to make them more perfect always. Um, But, yeah, I I would love to have someone like kind of get into that and the history of the decision to like start a new union or not and what the decision making was like there and really continue to dig into what happened differently in Staten Island versus Bessemer. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think it just, it burns people out when, when, when there's this, this kind of inauthenticness to like whether out of the inauthentic, inauthenticity, mm-hmm. whether it's, whether it's, you know, a progressive Congress member of Congress, the squad or whatever, or it's these unions that, 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 you know, say one thing and then do another. And I, I think, it, it, it just it, it really burns out the movement when 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 these people who are supposed to be you know carrying the flag for us are just kind of you know end up with these just spineless takes and, and just aren't willing to to actually fight for the things that 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 got them into those positions. So yeah, Jane McAlevey, thank you, Chat. I'm sorry, I don't know why my brain is like this. I really apologize. <laughs> um. Yeah, I'm totally with you, Alex. And, you know, thank you for calling in. And I, I'm glad that you enjoyed that aspect of the Shama um, episode as much as I did. Please keep screaming your truth about the realities <laughs> of what it's like to to take out these loans and the kind of constraints it put on, puts on your professional choices. And it makes you make socially maladaptive professional choices. Yeah, you know? it does. I joked on Twitter today that like, okay, never mind. I'm not for canceling student debt anymore. I'm just going to go back to being a corporate lawyer and I'm going to start by exploiting everybody who bad mouths student debt in the chat, <laughs> <laughs> like in my, in my mentions. Cause it's like, that is the, that is what you're basically saying to people. Oh, we just, you know, they're like, why can't you earn the salary? I was like, I've literally been earning the salary. Like I'm not, I never defaulted. I have been dutifully paying for all of this time. That's not the point. I paid more than the principal. That's not the point. I'm not lazy. I would desperately not like to be a corporate lawyer who's abusing you. Give me permission to stop abusing you for money so that I can pay my student loans. That is what I would like. It's a mutually beneficial arrangement. Anyway, thank you, Alex. I'll stop my rant. I'm going to go to appreciate it. Yeah, of course. I don't think I've seen Jacob with the French fries before. I've been intrigued by these French fries. And then I'm going to go back to the front of the line because you've been very patient, Cynthia. Jacob with the French fries. Can you unmute yourself? Going once, going twice. Can't say I didn't try ya. All right, Cynthia, you're up. What's on your mind this evening? Oh, fuck. I'm scared. (laughs) I don't I am hoping that I'm not the only person who like for my like adrenaline and blood starts pumping when I get to the front of the line. So I apologize. I'm trying to be concise. I wrote down my points. Excellent. Uh, I believe in you. Okay. The first thing that I want to say, which is the most important thing is 
Did you know that Nancy Myers is set to write, produce, and direct a film for Netflix? OMG. Do we know who's starring <laughs> it yet? No, we don't. But I just wanted to send that to you because I know that you're a Nancy Myers fan. Huge. You know what? Just the other day I was thinking, I was watching some movie with some great, you know, mature female star. And I was like, she needs to be in a Nancy Myers movie. Who was it? First of all, they should put Susan Sarandon in one. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Give her work. But it wasn't Susan Sarandon. I'll think of it. Okay. Thank you for hipping me to that. I will be continuing my Netflix (laughs) subscription. And by that, I mean continuing to use my brother's Netflix subscription. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm using my mom's. Um, okay, so interested in the libs of TikTok, fucking mess of a situation, the damn mess of the libs of TikTok, which is to say, I feel like, um, and I forgot the specific point in the podcast that it was, but there was this point in the podcast that I thought was the most important one where you were just, and you kind of brought it up in the call-in too about like, I'm sorry, that's my cat. Jesus. Um, about like, how do you wage these kinds of critiques without being sucked into the, you know, madness slash hysteria of it all that then gives the other side the kind of fuel, you know, like, and, and that was kind of what you brought up in the conversation. I think it was like last summer between Nathan and Glenn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a complicated question because, you know, everything's in sound bites, everything's in clips, everything's in, you know, these little attacks on bread tube or what have you. Um, <clears throat> so I have the, the question for you at the end. But basically, I feel like Glenn kind of dodged it a little bit because I feel like and I'm I'm kind of the same as you where, like, I know a lot of lefties completely, you know, um, like give up a Taylor Lorenz or they completely give up a Glenn Greenwald. And I still find a lot of value in both of them. Like, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, especially like Glenn seems to be one of the few journalists that really talks about like, um, like animal rights and like factory farming Mm -hmm. too. And I really appreciate that. And I still find a lot of um, value in him, but like, I, I also feel like both sides like have this, underground like i'm gonna talk about vibes okay and i just want to like <laughs> if you feel it too does everyone feel it too i feel like both sides you know the washington post of it all the tucker carlson of it all and all the stuff that trickles down after that both sides have this like passive aggressive cruelty that's like under like this undercurrent of like passive aggressive cruelty and then mm-hmm. they become like the pikachu meme face of like i was just clipping videos and posting them to TikTok, you know? And, mm-hmm. and I feel like Glenn kind of does this too. Like I was just pointing out, it's like people are reacting to the vibes, you know, mm-hmm. they're reacting to the, the anger and the, the, the cruelty. That's what they're really reacting to. And so the question is like, you know, I read a good opinion piece in the times. I think it was by Jamel Bluey about like, you know, Democrats can't keep escaping the culture war. And I feel mm-hmm. like it's about lefties. Like, I feel like, you know, how do we approach the culture war? Because the right is winning this. And it's really difficult to have these conversations. How can we do it strategically? Because I feel like we are losing this war and that we can't really like class reductionism our way out of it. You mm-hmm. know, like I, I don't feel like that's really working. And yeah, how do we, yeah, how do we strategically talk about these subjects and uh, debate about these subjects? Um, because I do think they are important, you know? Yeah. So 
I was I was thinking while you were talking about the the caller who brought up um, Cornell West and how he has a specific approach that yes causes him to maintain respect among people despite having conservative really radical politics. Yes. Yeah, it's because he leads with love, even with these his yes. criticisms. And again, you can say like so and so doesn't deserve this, and like they've earned all of this vitriol, and maybe that's true. But it's the same thing that I say when people say like, oh, why should I have to communicate with a racist or someone who has views that I don't agree with and they voted for Trump and all that? Because it's not about you. Right. It's not because they, they earned it. It's not because they deserve it. It's not because they deserve your grace. But it's about who you are and who you want to be and what it means for your own humanity to extend that grace and also whether or not it advances your political ends. It's for you um, and you're, the community that you're advocating for. And I kind of feel that way too. It's like when I was talking to this guy I used to edit, sometimes I would get, I would bristle because he would frame it as though I was being too um, uh, deferential to other people's points of view or something. Yeah. And I was like, no, it's not, I'm not like, I'm not like intimidated by pushback or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I know I can, I can get more flies with honey, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm trying yeah. to win. Yeah. And I think right. there's something about that with Bernie too. Like, yes, I don't think he should be saying Biden is my friend. That mm-hmm. makes me insane. But I also do think that there's something to the fact that he does stay out of a lot of the muck. Yeah. You know, I think there's a way to say, look, at the end of the day, I work with Biden and he's a colleague. And But this isn't about my interpersonal relationship with him. He has made political choices as a senator from MBNA that has been antithetical to the interests of the American people. And that's why I'm running against him as president. I will be a better president. I will be able to beat Trump better than him. And I will create a better country than him. Like, you need to be able to say that. But I think that you can say that without being like, he's a lying, you know, son of a bitch. Right. And I think there's, there's a reason that people like Bernie is because – in. In other contexts, not with Joe Biden, but in other contexts, he's been able to deliver that kind of message and be such a forceful advocate for progressive politics for 40 years without ever getting nasty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that even if you weren't coming from this place of like compassion, like genuine compassion, mm-hmm. if you thought about it like as a soulless strategy, mm-hmm. like, yeah, like think about it. If you're fighting with someone and you come at them with this like, Look, I see where you're, and you do this so well. And you're, I mean, this is why we like your podcast. Like, this is why I was, and I was so happy that you brought Glenn on because I know that a lot of, you know, lefties are like, he's a Republican and, you know, <laughs> Glenn. Um, but like, I, you know, I think it's like, it just seems like the battles just become like people, I mean, it sounds corny, but like people just like not talking to each other. Mm-hmm going in their respective, like writing their little piece and then like doing their little YouTube video. And it's like, what if y'all came into a room? <laughs> like, would you be, would you act the same way? And the answer is no. I mean, look, I, no. I love the conversation with Nathan and Glenn and I wanted yeah. to have it because I love Nathan and I love Glenn. And it was mm-hmm. irritating me to see them fighting on the internet. And I thought a little, mm-hmm. each of them was a little bit right about something, you know? Yeah. And I, that's, I feel the same way about, you know, Taylor and Glenn. I mean, I don't know Taylor as well, but she came on the podcast and I appreciated what she had to say and I appreciate her openness. And Mm -hmm. I do think that there's a disproportionate focus on her. I mean, it's hard not to say that's true when there's a billboard up in Times Square, you know, like it's, it's just, come on. It's like ridiculous. Like, well, even if you think there's a mound of criticisms for her, there's nothing that she's done that warrants that kind of response. That's insane. That's like weird, insane behavior. Mm -hmm. So I, and I know Glenn and I know that Glenn is like the sweetest, 
interpersonally and if they got together i could think i think it could go really a long way to them coming to a mutual understanding i just believe this in my heart i wouldn't want to broker something like that so that taylor gets dogpiled and i wouldn't want to broker something like that to get glenn you know accuse glenn of picking on young women and all of this stuff it would be because i genuinely in good faith think that it would be beneficial for both parties now right. whether i can convince everybody to come to the table is another story but i'm working on it right but thank you for that. And, the, and I just want to encourage us all to try and try. I mean, I know, again, you were well known on Twitter today. I was really enjoying it, but. but <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. No, no, this no, is no, my no. pet issue. I had to troll today. Mama needed to troll. I'll need to troll. <laughs> we all need to be a petty little bitch. Sometimes. But you, you weren't even being that, like, there wasn't a, like a real cruelty to it. Or, really. You're, you know, you're just. Well, there's like, the oh, one where I said that Trump was the biggest boon to my financial life. And people are, the libs are like wetting all of the pampers over that one. Right. But yeah, but I just want to encourage us to try, you know, try and not be little petty little bitches and try like, you know, I've got a lot of people in my family. I've got a, a mod centrist dem brother-in-law. I've got extremely Republican parents. And I always, I'm just, you know, again, I'm shaking and my blood is boiling, but like, I'm trying to always kind of, you know, uh, frame the conversation of like, I see where, you know, I see where you're coming from. Like, I, I understand, like, wh- and try to even get into where people's, like, even if they're being outrageously, you know, like, hysteria about LGBTQ in our school, like, try to really, like, frame it as, like, I understand, like, or, or like, what's causing, you know, the fear here? Like, you know, really trying to frame the conversation as such. Because, again, even if you're not truly trying to be compassionate or genuine, like, Think about it strategically, too, you know, of how you can sort of dismantle. Yeah. You're right, thing. Cynthia, and you're making me feel even more like I don't I got to say I don't love I did lose my temper a little bit in this Charlie Kirk debate. I feel like you guys are going to be so disappointed in me and like I let Wait, you what down. Was that? Wait, what was it's that? not out yet. It's going to come out next Thursday. It, we 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 got back on track, but there was a little blip in the beginning. And like, I'm sorry, guys, I'm not a perfect person. I was no, fucking triggered. Not- <laughs> oh, my God. No, I'm so ha- I didn't know. I. I've been like wanting this to happen. I'm like, when can she, when can Brianna it'll, Carly it'll and be Beth- out? It'll be out. And you guys <laughs> you know, look, I do my best. It is what it is. Uh, but thank you, Cynthia. It's, it's a good, it's a good uh, way to recenter ourselves. And I appreciate yeah. you. Yeah. All right. We've got about 15 minutes left on the clock. So let's try to make a little bit of a rapid fire. Anthony, you've been waiting up here near the front. I'm going to call on you. Cause also I don't recognize you. What's on your mind. Hey, what's going on? Oh, shoot. Uh, I, I'll get back to, bernie sanders i guess you know it's just in my opinion i was i was there when he won the primary then the first campaign 2016 in michigan and that we were celebrating let me put it that way we were at a concert that had nothing to do with (laughs) with bernie sanders and we put on freaking cnn on the screen and it was it was a party but i'm Mm -hmm. sorry he i went to freaking five six of his rallies here in in michigan and Mm -hmm. you know it's at a certain certain point, he he sold out to the national security state twice. So the, there's a certain you know disloyalty that it's just kind of really profound that he has to supposed principles, and you know it's it's not impressive. You know, people talk of him running again; it's really ridiculous. But uh, yeah, if he did, I will say he. I think that he would have to do some interviews with progressive outlets, and I would really hope that some of those are with people who could, you know, because so many of us know how few progressive outlets there are. We feel a kind of obligation to advance his cause. 
But I, I think that at this point, there are enough disillusioned people where he has to answer some tough questions if he wants to regain support. And I hope there is a journalist that he sits down with at some point that is willing to ask him those questions. Well, yeah, I mean, I'll say, I mean, for me, it's a no. And like, like I said, I have deal breakers, the whole Democratic Party. I'll tell you what, we got, a, I got a squad representative here and I donated probably up. To, I mean, I saw a tally, tallied up and said $89 on Blue Act Blue. And mm-hmm. I probably sent him a couple dollars uh, cash. So I'll send on $90, a squad member there. No, they all voted for weapons for Ukraine in mm-hmm. two separate bills today. Today, they mm-hmm. voted for weapons for Ukraine. No, I have deal breakers. Even Rashida, she's my favorite. <laughs> yeah, no, garbage, 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 garbage. Oh. I'm sorry. And no, 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 they're all garbage. They're going to vote for weapons for Ukraine. How about Nina? She's going to be pro-cop and horrible on foreign policy. You don't want, you'd rather have the real McCoy corporate dem stab you in the back than a progressive one. I'm sorry. She already said she was going to disappoint. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, like, I can't, look, I, I want that not to be true, but it's difficult to see, like I saw somebody in the chat earlier talking about their frustration with, you know, squad members who have said, oh, I've got to take this position on Israel because that's how you win in my district. I think Jamal Bowman has basically taken that stance. I know that S&T has been under a lot of pressure from DMFI and some of these, you know, Israel lobby groups that have been smearing her as anti-Semitic in the district. I mean, it is both true that the pressure is real, but also if you can't stand up to it, it's not worth very much, you know? So I, I, I get it. I hear you, Anthony. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't sell your soul to do a deal with the devil. That's the Democratic Party, but thank you. Have a good night. Thank you, Anthony. Uh, Louisa, I tried to call on you before and it didn't work. So let's try again. You're up. Unmute yourself and let me know what's in your mind. Hi. Hi. Can you hear me? I can, loud and clear. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Um, I I'm not. I don't have anything substantive, substantive to say. I'm a, a student and undergrad at, at Columbia, mm-hmm. and I, I love your podcast very much. Thank it's you. the only thing I listen to. I don't have much time. Oh. But um, I get some music in there. You got to get music in the rotation, and you'll go crazy. I learned that the hard way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We we have finals week. Mm. next week so I'm, mm. I'm hanging in there but mm. I, I wanted to report that um we have a at, at columbia we have like a mandatory philosophy class mm-hmm. and we were doing um the Kamba river collective um black feminist statement mm-hmm. and my professor played a video of you on the um bernie podcast uh what was it here the burn mm-hmm with um, Barbara Smith in class. I was so touched and I was so happy. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I wanted to let you know. Oh, that's so crazy. Oh my God, the world is so crazy. You know, somebody wrote me, I think in a DM, I have to find it and get back to them saying that they taught a class and they used uh, my conversation with Heather McGee. In, in some lesson. And that like blows my mind. I mean, obviously it's not like so surprising because of who, you know, Barbara Smith is and who Heather McGee is in the scholarship that they've done and all of the things. Like, obviously I don't think it's about me, but it's so lovely to have been able to facilitate those conversations. And that's, I think like, it's such a compliment. The, it's the questions. It's the questions you ask and the, and the conversations you facilitate. I mean, um, what actually really surprised me about the conversation that we had in class after um, the clip was about how a lot of these black 
black, early black feminists were very much um, attached to making change. Mm-hmm. And it was, they were, they were um, expressing the reality of racism and, and sexism and the racism and white feminism and, and so on. But they were in homophobia, but they were not um, negativistic mm-hmm. and not limited by yeah. the kind of stuff that current identity politics. She talks, you, you ask, I don't know if you ask her or if she ends up there herself, but she talks about the coining the term identity politics mm-hmm. and how it was not meant to be what it is now mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. they were talking about it. Yeah, that's all. I don't want to keep you. No, I really appreciate you saying that. And I will also just say as a plug, I'm really proud of all the episodes of Hear the Burn that we did. And if you're ever itching for more content, I think a lot of those interviews are evergreen. I've been thinking a lot about the student debt episode in particular, where I interviewed a lot of folks in the campaign about what student debt cancellation would mean to them. And some of the stories are just so moving. Um, There's still some of the best examples of why we need it that I know and that I draw on. So Thank you for yeah, reminding us all, Lisa. You, and I'm, I'm so grateful to have found you. Oh, thank, thank you so much, Lisa. You really made my night. Okay. Thank you. Have a good night. Okay. Everybody. Good night. Bye-bye. Okay. I know, Chris, we, we, we messed up before. I'm going to bring you back. I think you've been in the chat. Thank you so much, <laughs> I was like, I was like punching myself. I like, I hung up on my mother. No! She called me right when you were letting me up earlier. I hung up on my mom because I wanted to get in, and I like I. Anyway, thank you for letting me back up. I really appreciate it. Of course. I apologize to my mom already. I already <laughs> called her back before I got back in the queue and was like, "I'm sorry, I hung up on you." And good, anyway, tell her I'm sorry too next time you talk to her. <laughs> But could you hear me at all before? Because I hung up on her. It was like I could unmute myself, but it didn't look like I was. No, I couldn't. I couldn't hear you at all. But I'm glad we made it. App acts really weird sometimes. It's not perfected yet. I know they're working. Although it's, I think it's gotten a lot smoother since a few months ago. It has gotten better for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what's what were you gonna say that was so important that you? uh, Well, shut shut down your. Sorry, I'm I'm on a walk with the dog and there's some people that like dogs um (laughs) so you know the first thing i wanted to say was i really wish that that interview with glenn went like three hours or six hours or like my whole work day because you guys are just so fun to listen to together and you guys have such interesting conversations and glenn's immensely interesting and Obviously, I think you understand that I find you very interesting as well. Um, so maybe like a long form, like two, three hours maybe with Glenn sometime. That'd be really awesome. Oh, I'd love to. And I know that we could. I'd love to be in the same room at some point, but I don't know when we're going to be in the same country next. Much He's less. in America right now, I think. Wait, is he really? With his kids. I saw a picture on Twitter the other day. Of him and his kids in, in like Florida or something. He said the best part about work trips to America is when you bring your kids. Oh, I did see that tweet, but I I didn't clock the America part. I just saw work trips and kids in a cute picture. I thought he said in America, but maybe not. Maybe I made that up in my head. 
But okay. I mean, do do you call, do you visit Florida for vacation when you live in Brazil? Well, he said it was a work trip, so oh, fair enough. Fair enough. Start going to Florida, even though you don't want to. Hey, just a fun one. First off, uh, you and I disagreed on the Will Smith thing. Mm-hmm. I saw it and was like, eh, I don't agree with violence. That's not cool. Like. The guy made a joke, and and to me, it was a complimentary joke saying Jada would look really cool as G.I. Jane and was kind of complimentary. So you and I disagreed a little on that, but I'm curious if you had any opinions on the Mike Tyson one because I saw this comedian make a tweet about it, and he was a little cruder, and but I agreed with the sentiment of what he said. He's like, I saw Will Smith... Uh, and Chris Rockin was like, damn, violence is wrong. That was dumb on Will's part. And then I see Mike Tyson pummel this dude on a plane, and it, like, this isn't exactly how I would say it. It's just the way the comedian on Twitter said it, and I can't remember his name. But he's like, and it made me hard. And I liked it. <laughs> so I don't so, know exactly what happened with Mike Tyson. I mean, I saw some references to it, but what, he hit someone on a plane for what reason? I think the dude, like, threw a water bottle at him. He was definitely calling him a peasant. Like, I saw the video of that. So part. it was retaliatory. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, Mike Tyson was just at a 420 celebration that day in San Francisco. He was, he was extremely high on marijuana. And I mean, look, he has to, like, really be terrible to agitate somebody when they're that high so my my point about will smith was never that violence is good and it i gotta say it's a little frustrating to be saying the same nuanced thing over and over and over again and give you know it's it's that i think that people who act like slapping someone is equivalent to like capital v violence they're just overstating the case and it can be the case that Will obviously shouldn't have hit Chris Rock, but also Chris Rock was being a pain in the ass. Like, it's just not that hard to hold those two thoughts in my head at the same time. Now, I disagree I on the the Chris Rock being a pain in the ass part. But right. I and, I, and I said that there was some context that a lot of people weren't following, especially some context specifically with Chris Rock's relationship with black hair and black women in particular. That makes a lot of us feel like he had this coming for a while. So I would just say that. But additionally... Um, I don't know. I didn't see what happened to Mike Tyson, but Mike Tyson is obviously one of the best boxers or whatever of all time. And it's kind of serious when he hits somebody. Um, yeah, he also does have that history of domestic violence and some stuff in his past. And it, I mean, that's neither here nor there. I think he he was convicted of rape. Yes. Robin Givens. Yeah, for sure. And then he bit the person's ear off. There's like a lot with him. But the point is, my, but the, I bring up his fighting, not his behavior, prior bad acts. As a lawyer, I kind of don't want to bring those in. But just the fact that he's literally just so strong, you know? Yeah, you got to avoid that code, that rule 404. The, yeah, like, exactly. The, and the implications of him hitting somebody, to me, are just, people are like, oh, Will Smith's so big and Chris Rock is so little and all this. I mean, like, Mike Tyson's Mike Tyson. Now, obviously, it sounds <laughs> like somebody got physical with him first, which is like, well, sucks that's not very wise of you to get physical with mike tyson that's kind of on you on some level but again i didn't see the clip so i'm sorry i can't really weigh in on that one all right um the other thing i wanted to ask you about uh 
one or two things if you'll allow. Let's just make it one because we're coming up one. on the three hour, the Fair at 11 o'clock. You want to jump like on to CNN Plus's grave at all? And Any, then maybe you can let me have one Do you want to jump on what? CNN Plus's grave. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, this is another one of those things that I understand why left media, like, hits a lot. You get a lot of clicks from it. And, you know, we did it on Rising. And, you know, you love to see a Goliath fall. And it is delicious. But I do, like, I'm, I am I think I'm just not, I don't have quite the appetite for it. I mean, I don't care. I don't know. It, I don't know. You didn't, I, I'm, I'm I kind mean, of you over were going to tune into Anderson Cooper's parenting advice or Jake Tapper's No, of course. I mean, to me, the, the, to me, the part of it that's so frustrating is if they wanted ratings, they should hire leftists. Like, it's very frustrating. There's obviously this huge audience of people on BreadTube, people on the internet that are looking for counter-cultural, you know, um, uh, orthodox positions. You have people like you know Kim Iverson who are in this interesting political middle ground that so many people are attracted to and her videos do so well and that the mainstream media ignores all of that and just hires the same old people to do like even blander content than the news. So as, as, right. as a leftist who would really like to see some mainstream, some leftist views mainstreamed, it's just continually frustrating to me that even the profit motive isn't incentivizing them to have leftists on. Okay, two two quick things. I'll just throw them out there, and you can choose how you respond Chris. to them. Uh, first <laughs> is Alex Walker. Have I asked you about him yet? The the dude in in Colorado that's run into unseat Lauren Boebert. Any? I saw you. No, about and him I don't know anything about that race. So maybe I don't know anything about that race. So maybe skip to the other one. Um. Um. The, uh, oh, I had it written down. What was it? Completely lost it. Um, oh, yes. So, the Bernie campaign, which we've talked about a bit tonight, mm -hmm. and I've been supremely interested on. Uh, I have not listened to your podcast yet with, uh, with Ari. I'm keen to hear it. Um, I've seen him running around. I saw him on, uh, on breaking points the other day, but, uh, spill the beans. I mean, I think for me, the big thing that really upset me about the Bernie campaign, well, one of the big things, there's a lot in 2020 to be upset about and the bending the knee to Bernie was a big thing or to, uh, Joe rather was a big thing. Um, but like Zephyr Teachat wrote that op-ed, and and it flew for maybe half a day mm -hmm. before the Bernie campaign came out and distanced themselves from Zephyr Teachout when she enumerated many issues on where uh, Joe Biden is plainly corrupt. And yeah, and, I mean, uh, look, I, clearly Sirota was on on that team. Yeah. There. Yeah, so I, I think we covered so this ground a little bit, and I don't have a ton more to say about it. And I really would like to get some, just a couple more callers in that haven't had an opportunity to call. And this is your like third or fourth question, Chris. So I'm going to say like, I don't have any more tea to spill. But thank you so much for calling in. I'm glad we were able to get you in here. All right, we want to do. Okay, I really don't have anything else you. to say that I didn't say already. All right, take care. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Uh, Reverend Edmund, say your piece. Rev, you there? 
Okay. Lance, say your piece. Can you unmute yourself, Lance, Ladybug Lance? All right. Don't say it and try. Hello, okay. I'm here. There you go. Yeah. What's in your mind tonight, Lance? I'll quit the platitudes. You're great. You're uh, you're the best at, at this stuff. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of great people, but you're like at the top of the heap. I just love you're just a little too nice sometimes to people. Okay, you don't you don't need plot. You don't need plot right now. You need succinctness, right? So, Nina versus when I hit me. Yeah. When I listen to when I hit when I hear Sama Savat, and then I hear Nina Turner talk to me, not to make a direct comparison, but like listening to Martin Luther King, and then listening to Reverend Matt. I just don't get it. Like she's like a more refined AOC, where she could talk gobbledygook for a long time and tell you how it's going to take years and decades for something to happen. Okay, that's my that's my take on that whole thing. And one thing about the small donation thing, that's called, I call it the blah blah. There's a lot of stuff that was. I'm I'm feel like I'm weirdly hearing you, Lance and Chris, at the same time. Is anyone yeah. else hearing that? Am I talking to myself? Yeah, I'm hearing yeah. You. You're hearing me. Let me hit hang up. This happened on Aaron Matei's podcast the other day. Let me uh, let me jump out. I apologize. No worries. That's hilarious. Thanks, Chris. Okay, keep going, Lance. So there's a lot of progressive lobby, uh, lobbyists, right? They're not all just corporate sons of guns. Now, they're not all great. Like you have the teachers uh, union, right? They're a pretty strong lobby. I'm not mm-hmm. pleased with the corporate of it, blah, blah, blah. There's environmental lobbyists, really strong. They have good lawyers or winning stuff in court. So there's good lobbyists, right? They're mm-hmm. not all horrible. But they all like in the American money president. that they take. Is the- like in the movie The American yeah, President but, with what, the net bending. Right, right. But <laughs> so, so, so. Mm-hmm. But the point I'm making, though, is that so? Yeah, okay. There's so, but all that money that they spend, it's attached to a cause. It gets stuff accomplished. What I call the small donation thing going, and I have to say that the people that like AOC and Bernie people and all the people that are around, and you know, you too, but you're not one of them, but are really smart too. So if I thought of it, they probably did too. I call it the blob lobby. You take a million donations from a hundred, a hundred dollars each. You don't know any of them anything. Just a general, I'm a good guy. That money isn't bundled. That's why there's bundlers. 10,000 times 10, it's 100,000. Now we're going to listen to your cause, you know, what you want. That's why people bundle, not just to be a nice guy. Mm -hmm. So if people took all their hundreds of dollars and said, well, let's make sure we have at least 1,000 people that are going to pool with the other 900 people for $100 each. So now that $100,000 is going to be for workers' rights. And then the next thousand, you know what I'm saying? Mm Mm-hmm. So, so a couple of things. $100, $100 small yeah. donations, that means that you don't owe anybody anything because you owe everybody everything. You own the whole agenda. And that's why I think it's a scam. I think it's not just an unintended consequence. I think they know this and I think they like it that way. Mm. Mm. Okay. And, yeah. and the other I thing. Mean, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. And the other thing well, about electoral like, politics. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just trying to talk fast to get all my No, I was just going to say yeah. that uh, I I know that at one point like Chank Ugar tried to put together a like a pack, like a progressive pack. There have been efforts to kind of like put together a pool of money to incentivize um what's her face uh that Republican woman from Maine to vote against uh Judge Kavanaugh. You know, there there have been these efforts to like try to bundle money to incentivize people to do this, that, the other from a leftist perspective, and yeah, I don't know that any have been successful. 
it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be that complicated in other words it could say hey if you're into this cause boom here's our petition you know how you do petitions got to be only a paragraph mm-hmm. long boom sign up boom there's that hundred thousand we all you know subscribe to that it doesn't have to be complicated it doesn't have to be hierarchical and it doesn't have to be about like movements to get some guy where you have dark money and you're fighting to get kavanaugh and you're going to get tired of people to the no we want this right. We want this law, HR 463, you know, specific things that we want done. And I'll tell you something. When I first got involved with the left, it was with NYPERG, which was, of course, started by Ralph Nader. Mm-hmm. And it was brilliant. Mm-hmm. I, I have so many disillusions about the left. And it's too bad because that started out in the right foot with uh, with NYPERG. Because you go to the door with getting donations, but you have a specific petition about a specific law. And sometimes mm-hmm. you have, you know, petition so if you're doing something about like lake erie and you're in buffalo you're going to have that if it's something about the hudson river you're going to have the petition about that if you're over towards albany and it was just brilliant and it was direct and people said wow these people are not just asking for money they're asking for my petition and they're we're really getting stuff done of course ralph nader why wouldn't it be great and so the other thing too about like the 60s I make one last point and again, i want to mm-hmm. get your thoughts on all this but electoral politics versus direct action i'm a geezer hey okay? i'm a boomer <laughs> And I know we screwed everything up. We'll all be dead someday and life will be wonderful again. But in the meantime. Stop. They're good boomers, Marianne, my mom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so, 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 but like with, uh, say, back in the day, it was a joke about you buy, oh, well, I bought Playboy for the articles. But it was like Arthur Miller and Gore Vidal and Norman Mailer and Truman Capote. And with mm-hmm. sports figures involved in politics, it was Muhammad mm-hmm. Ali. It was mm-hmm. John Carlos and, uh, and, and, and John Smith. I mean, uh, Tommy Smith with the fist raise at the Olympics. You know, it, it had real importance. Ali went to the Supreme Court. He went to, he was willing to go to jail, all that stuff. That, it's not LeBron J. Colin Kaepernick, great. I support him a lot. But it was like, that's what's so controversial now. Mm-hmm. Muhammad Ali was like, what's populating now? And it wasn't about electoral. There was no 60 squad. You see, it was, mm-hmm. Ma, it was uh, Martin Luther King and JFK. Or I mean, yeah, first, but you know, certainly it was him, but, uh, uh, and LBJ and said, okay, Martin, go get you, go do your stuff, you know, make us do it. He knew that he couldn't do it even if he wanted to LBJ. Like FDR was a centrist, wanted to save capitalism. Well, LBJ was a racist and he switched. He kind of did, you know, he didn't want to be racist anymore. He wanted a legacy, I guess. But you know, so he did real once he decided to get behind the civil rights and stuff. He, but he knew he couldn't just do it by the stroke. And how was he going to get these people that he had to grab their lapels? It wasn't just because of him. It was because there was enough pressure from, you know, Martin Luther King was so organized they mm-hmm. were. But there was no, you know, squad of the 60s that was like, yeah, man, it was Tom Hayden and it was Abby Hoffman. No, they were outside the system just raking, mm-hmm. just shaking things up. There wasn't anybody in government that was doing it. We never thought about electoral politics. First, if you're mm-hmm. a conservative, you're out, of, you're out in the wilderness. Didn't matter. Mm-hmm. You had to kind of act it up. But liberals didn't think about who we're going to get this time to run for this office or that. Mm-hmm. All the people who were in control, it was LBJ and the liberals and Democrats that were all in control. I mean, they had the Senate. They had the House for the entire 60s. JFK into, uh, you know, LBJ. They controlled everything in a time of great change where it wasn't just like they were caretakers. Stuff was really happening. And a lot of it was liberal. Not No thanks to the corporate Dems and the bipartisan, you know, dismantling of the New Deal, which was happening, too. But still. You know, all this stuff happened rapidly. It didn't take years and years and years. And it's because we didn't think about it. We just like, get it done. The anti-war was only 50-50. You know, half of the country was still in favor of the Vietnam War. But the 50% that was against it was much more vocal, just like the right wing got more vocal. So, I mean, 
things things were just so different and it was like what i say about the art authors like arthur miller and gore vidal and norman all right so now we have will smith this is our cultural icons now or lebron james you know i love the guy but you know what no you're not you're not he tries and people that are current like civil rights people no lebron you're not don't try just just don't be like well, michael they just, jordan they don't he, have enough yeah, yeah. They, it just feels like they don't and i don't mean this disrespectfully in the least but you know they're not people with the kind of gravitas and kind of political context of a baldwin or a muhammad ali and part of it is the times part of it is our feeling education system you know part of it is the fact that even who knows what's going on in lebron's head but we live in a world where barack obama exists and can swoop in and has so much influence and and is seen as such a good faith actor that he can end an nba strike with a phone call you know and that that is like something we have yeah. to go up against i don't see when i ask people on these shows sometimes in these episodes like who's the leader it's not because I have some like sycophantic need to replace Bernie or, you know, like I'm not stupid, but I, I look at what you're talking about right now. It's such an important perspective and it is a little disorienting to feel like there is nobody with that kind of cultural platform who also has the historical perspective, the political courage, the intellect to speak truth to power the way those people did. And when I asked Chris Hedges that he's like, well, all those people are in jail. And I'm like, well, fuck. And, you know, there are people like, right. you know, Cornell West, but they won't even let him on TV. Well, Chris Hedges talks about the genius intellectuals that he encounters in, in his prison teach, you know, uh, work, you know. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what you were just saying about uh, uh, the gravitas, not having the gravitas. Oh, gosh. What was the thought of um, uh, being vandalized and uh, um, uh, shoot. Um, but. Yeah, they don't have the context, and it's not, it's just, it's just crazy. The Will Smith thing, so maybe this was the point I was going to make, is what Jim Carrey was talking about was that we always are going to be, you know, culture leads politics. More people vote for American Idol and know the names than they do the people running for office in their state or, you know, who the vice president is in, in terms of voting. So it's always been the case, right, that, that like, whether it's Arthur Miller and Gore Vidal or whether it's Will Smith, but what Jim Carrey said when he said, we're not the cool club anymore. He was talking about this silence instead of any boos or like hisses or at least grumblings. It wasn't nothing like that. Doesn't mean you have to boo, but like, mm, you know, that kind of mumble under the breath. It's like, that's not cool. None of that. They were just silent. And they gave him a standing ovation 45 minutes later. That's what Jim Carrey meant. We're not the cool kids anymore. We're not the cool club anymore. And people always look to the elites. People don't put pictures of maybe Bernie Sanders, right, of of, you know, politicians on their wall. They put sports figures and they put celebrities, you know, that was true back in the 30s. You know, you might have had an FDR or you might have a JFK here and there, but no, you had like the jazz guy. You had Frank Sinatra. You had Clark Gable. You know what I mean? Or, you know, Marilyn Monroe, whoever. That's who people look up to. for. And Marilyn Monroe married Arthur Miller. And it wasn't just because she was hot. He could have had anybody. He was a rock star, you know. And so it's just that we've just been infantilized slowly but surely over the decades, number one, as a culture, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and we just don't have that, that, that they don't, they don't, they don't know how to run the show anymore. The elites, you know, it isn't a bunch, like somebody was talking about how movies suck, David Mamet, but he was saying how it's not a Jewish guy with a cigar in an office saying, yeah, son, I don't know about that. It's kind of, sounds kind of weird to me. I'm going to, you know, but yeah, go for it. You know, I like this. I like the idea of it, you know, and, and then you went and made the movie. And the money was there.
yeah. maybe argued about whether it's going to be two million or ten million. But and now it's not. It's just so corporate. And that's well, I appreciate you corporate. calling in with the perspective, Lance. And maybe we can call in again when we have more time and talk about what you think we should do about it and who do you think are the most promising figures for that kind of emergence. You know, people laugh at me when I say, "Look, I like unironically would like to be on the View," and it's because I have a hard time wrapping my brain around how to most efficiently get the kind of reach that I think is necessary, you know, and you can say that, that it's stupid, but like, or, or that they won't allow certain things to be said. And then, okay, well, I'll be a person who got canceled from the view. And as I was saying earlier, that ups your, your profile in and of itself. But I, I, I do constantly right. think like, where's the biggest bang for your buck, you know, practically speaking. Um, so thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Lance. I'm going to try to get at least just one more in here because my, Go puff to order just arrived and there was ice cream sitting in my hallway. Sierra, I don't think I've seen Thanks you in here before. That's on... Yeah, of course. Thank you. Uh, Sierra, can you unmute yourself and maybe close this out? Oh, Sierra changed her mind. Um, let's try Ela from the back. I went to high school with a girl named Ela. She threatened to, um, she's a nice girl. She's a nice girl. Oh, how are you doing, Ela? <laughs> oh my God. Um, Bree, can you hear me? I can hear you. I'm literally checking out at Safeway right now. Um, I'll make it really quick. Just finish shout out, um, Cynthia. I'm so on board with what she was saying. I feel like we may have had an exchange, like a text exchange over, um, Colin about a month ago. So, oh, that's so cute. Happy to hear from her. <laughs> yes. Oh, I love that for um, you guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I just, uh, super on board with, um, with trying to approach people, um, super level headed and trying to remind ourselves that we're trying to coalition build and not make the left like totally smelly and odious. And I had an exchange at work today that reminded me of that. Um, so that's it. Um, yeah. Thanks for taking my call. Um, thank you for... Thank you for calling in. That was so succinct that I want to just do maybe one more. How about you, Henry? Want to close this out tonight? Kashama Savant for president. I'm off. Hello, <laughs> hello, Bree. Can you hear me? I can I can hear you. Was I hearing okay, two people cool. at once for a second? I don't even know what's yeah, happening I, with this app right now. I don't know. I don't know what's happening. But uh, thank you for taking my call. I'll try not to keep you for too long. I know your ice cream is probably melting. <laughs> I like it. I, we all know from my tweets that I like it, like basically soupy. So you're good. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but anyways, I just wanted to say that I thought the funniest outcome that could possibly happen would be if Elon Musk does go through with buying Twitter, but ends up banning Glenn Greenwald from Twitter so that <laughs> Glenn Greenwald can then go and explain <laughs> on whatever other platforms he wants to how Elon Musk is not worse than other billionaires. And that his being banned from Twitter is actually a product of Elon Musk's commitment to free speech. <laughs> so, I mean, that was just kind of my thought on All hearing right. Glenn Greenwald's take on the whole Twitter situation. But it seems like Elon Musk isn't even going to go through with the purchase. So, well, as I, usual, I saw that we'll reported, see. but that didn't really seem like substantive reporting either. It felt a little bit clickbaity, and I don't. I don't know that it's true that he's actually not going to, I don't know. We'll see. We'll all find out in a short period yeah. of time. I'm sure. Um, sure. But yeah, I saw that tweet of yours, Henry, you got jokes. I appreciate you. Oh yeah. No problem. Uh, all right. but, I mean, oh, mm -hmm. yeah. 
if you want to go eat your ice cream, that's fine with me. No, no, no. It's okay. Finish your finish what you're gonna say. I was just gonna say, I well, as I mentioned in the chat, like I blocked Twitter and Facebook from uh, my network. I don't really plan on using them anymore. I don't really feel like I get any value from them mm-hmm. that I can't get anywhere else. Uh, and now they just become such a battleground for this versus that interest or whatever that, I mean, who I barely care anymore. I mean, these mm-hmm. platforms have gone from being the method of communication to being a among one among many. You know how Netflix was like the platform for streaming, and now it's become just a platform for streaming. I mean, I really yeah, man. Let's go to TikTok. Thing. Should we all yeah, go to TikTok? I'm not going to TikTok. Uh, <laughs> you can go wherever you want. <laughs> I, don't I have trust to think about Instagram more. Like I, I sometimes think I wish everyone would come over to Instagram. Like you guys follow me on Instagram. I'm BJoyG. Like we have fun over there. No yeah, one's but mean. Instagram is just owned by Facebook, so it's just horizontally integrated into a different tech monopoly. I, mean, I know, but there's pretty pictures over there. Interior <laughs> design, interior design uh, videos. <laughs> true, true. I mean, my thought on the whole situation is that all these tech companies need to be broken up into basically at least two parts. One of which would be like the content storage, and the other one would be like the algorithm vendor. So one would just store the content, and then you can just pick which type of algorithm. Do you want like the most recent stuff? Do you want stuff tailored to this interest, that interest, whatever? Like. That's kind of my idea of bifurcating the content industry would be between storage and algorithm. What's the value of that? Help me understand. Because basically right now the way I see it is like YouTube is both. They store the videos, they upload the videos, they process the videos, they make the videos available for people to download, Mm -hmm. but they're also the one and only algorithm vendor of YouTube. You go into YouTube, only YouTube decides which YouTubes to show on your homepage. But my idea is that to split up that first uh, storage and retrieval functionality versus the algorithm discovery functionality so that you can, Mm. different companies could try to develop different algorithms to present the content to you differently. Oh, that's fascinating. So you still get the benefit of the repository being all of your high school friends in one place, but you get to choose how you interface with them the same way that there is that kind of do. uh, duplicity, not duplicity, not the right word, but the, the, the subway is like re- redundant, redundancy in the subway system. Like all, cause all of. of the lines were competing against each other. So that's why you have all of like the same way you can get to like multiple ways you can get to Brooklyn. You know what I mean? Sort of. It's like, it's like you'd have all the same videos on YouTube, but you, if you want to go to a different like search engine of YouTube or something like that, like if you wanted to sort by like right. recency or like this kind of relevancy, that kind of relevancy, like many, you could, my idea is that you would have like different algorithm uh, suppliers that if you want like this type of algorithm or that type of algorithm, you know, just make it a little more transparent because like right now it's like there's just one algorithm to access all of I that content. I kind of love that. Let me ask, I've been trying to get <laughs> Zephyr you. back on. I think she's really busy. It might just be Matt Stoller, but I'm going to ask one of these tech platform speech expert types, maybe um. Evan Greer maybe, maybe might come back. If you have other suggestions of good tech folks to have mm-hmm. this kind of conversation with, I think that's fascinating, Henry. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, my other thought is that no matter what you do, at the end of the day, under capitalism, these platforms all have their primary motive of generating revenue. And the way that they gener- as I put this in my comment, like the way that they generate the revenue is by getting selling ads. The way they sell the ads is by provoking emotion. The way they are getting viewers, and the way they get viewers is by provoking emotion. The emotion mm-hmm. that is most easy to provoke is anger. 
So mm -hmm. all these platforms really have the biggest incentive to promote anger in their viewers or users or whatever. So they're really like kind of incentivized to do the exact sort of thing that leads to violence in a way. Yeah, for sure. And you know? for those of you who are newer comers to Bad Faith, we did an episode with Zephyr and Glenn about a year ago that touched on all of these issues because it was we were all talking about this post one six and what to do because Trump had just been kicked off Twitter. And it's a really good conversation. I listened, I listened to it before I had Glenn back on and I was like, Oh yeah, this was a great conversation. So it's on YouTube and clips. And mm -hmm. I think it was a premium one. You can subscribe and get it. Maybe I'll unlock it, but thanks for the reminder, Henry. That's like, no problem. I'm going to give some thinking. I'm going to give some thought to that. Okay. She's cool. so great. Jeffrey teach out. She's my fave, man. I'm a New Yorker. And so I wanted her for governor and all that. Are you going to just briefly? How? I know Brie, I'm sorry. Who I don't know how I got right now. Down, but how is this oh, happening? This is Lance again. I don't know how you didn't get me off the thing, but I, I'm going to shut up in two seconds. But are you going to be on Instagram tonight? I'd love to give you my take of who I see, as you were suggesting, who to pick up the mantle. I have a really good one. It's going to give you a big laugh. Who pick up the mantle? Okay, on the left. you were a little bit in and out. But yeah. you don't have time now to talk about I, it. I, you're a little bit in and out now. You said something about Instagram. You guys, you can send me messages. I just want to be really honest with you. I'm overwhelmed, and I will not be looking at anything. I'm gonna, I've am i been traveling all week. I'm very depleted from Charlie Kirk. I'm going to eat my ice cream. I'm going to watch TV, and I promise you I'm not checking <laughs> e any emails or responding to my mother or anybody else. But I, Thank you. I, Goodbye. I, I, I appreciate you. all of you. Thank you so much, Henry. I'm going to try to um, – just force mute you all because I don't even know what's happening right now. <laughs> uh, I want to give my usual plug to <laughs> clip episodes. Sorry about that. Uh, and so you can push them on social media. You can clip them, download them into the like video little format with little words on the bottom, post them at me and I will retweet them. That's the easiest way to go about doing this. I really appreciate it. People need to know about all the fascinating things and insights you are saying in these episodes and how much fun we have in these long evenings together. I'm sorry I missed Monday. I will try to schedule a makeup episode. Let me know if there's anything that you want to talk about. Apparently the slap is still out on the culture. So if you want to do another pop culture episode, I can get a fun guest to come on and chat with me. You guys are great. I stay on here for three hours when I only meant to stay on for two hours because I genuinely, sincerely enjoy your company. You guys are so wonderful. I'm so grateful for you. You're such a wonderful community. Thank you. Take care of yourselves. I will be seeing you Monday for another episode. And as always, keep the faith.